the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. Before we start with our guest, Celia Edgar, I wanted to talk a bit with our special guest co-host, Tim Swartz, who's back this week. Tim, you were working on a, what was it, the last book that Tim Beckley had written before he died? What happened yes. with that? We, uh, myself and Sean Castile, we finished it, and uh, it is now out and available on uh, Amazon. It's called uh, Dulce Warriors. It's actually, uh, um, it's it's gotten a, a, a very good reception. Uh, you just, you never can tell with our books. Sometimes, you know, people will just uh, treat them like it's, it's, it's the worst trash that they have ever seen come into their house. And then other times they can't stop uh, singing the praises. So, but uh, fortunately, this one, uh, it's, uh, it, it's turning out to be pretty popular. So the criticism descends from normal commentary to, oh, just another Tim Beckley rehash. But we can't do that because Tim's no longer with us. And we all miss him. He was an, such an interesting character. What I'd like to do, Tim, is get you and Sean Castile on the show to talk about that book, maybe in a few weeks, okay? Yeah, sure. By the way, speaking of interesting guests, in mid-February, we're going to be featuring Ralph Blumenthal of the New York Times. He's one of the three writers who wrote those pieces on UFOs in the Times starting in December of 2017. So he, Helene Cooper, who's the chief Pentagon correspondent for the Times, and Leslie Kane. So Ralph has also written a bio of John Mack. Of course, he did a lot of abduction research. He's a Harvard psychiatrist. So that would be really interesting. Zelia Edgar, you're author of Just Another Tinfoil Hat Presents. Okay? Yes. Why that title? Well, thank you for asking, by the way, because uh, I definitely, I use that term, Just Another Tinfoil Hat, across every platform that I'm on. And it actually stems, funnily enough, from the fact that I could not figure out a name when I first started my YouTube channel. And I was agonizing over it for, gosh, a couple of weeks, probably. I was talking to my mom one day and she was like, well, you know, because she, of course, had been subjected to hearing me hemming and hawing for, you know, a couple of weeks. And so I was talking to her and I finally just said, well, you know, I really want to let people know that I'm trying to do something different. I'm trying to, you know, have a really creative way of looking at this. I don't want them to think I'm just another tinfoil hat. And she looked at me and she said, well, that's it. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she was like, well, that's the name, Just Another Tinfoil Hat. And the more I thought about it, the more I liked it. It has a ring to it. So I've used that pretty much any place that I ever appear kind of as my title. And when it came time to naming the book, I wanted to definitely keep it in that vein. But I'm also a huge fan. And this is kind of a little segue here. Um, the way that I present my research, I really have high regard for Alfred Hitchcock and Rod Serling, how they presented their, yes, fictional stories, but on TV. They're just sort of the narrator to these bizarre events, these bizarre stories. That's where the presents came from. Just another tinfoil hat presents is especially my love for Alfred Hitchcock. Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, That's yeah. the second imitation I do. The other one is Bond, James Bond. But on the <laughs> other hand, Tim Swartz does 27 and a half voices. <laughs> <laughs> oh, am I, am I supposed to do one now for you, Gene? <laughs> no, I don't do Porky Pig, okay? No, no, no I can't do Porky Pig. <laughs> yeah. 
I once saw an interview with Mel Blanc about how he devised the imitation of Porky Pig. And he started out with the oinking sound, the oink sound, and then somehow he modified that into a speaking voice. So, whereas Bugs Bunny is just some guy from Brooklyn. Yeah. Everybody from Brooklyn says, what's up, Doc? No, they do not. We don't want to get into that. Zelia, let me ask you a serious question. And, you know, you're a young person compared to Tim and I. How did you get hooked up into searching the paranormal? You know, it's one of those things where I can't remember a time I wasn't interested in generally just kind of weirder stuff. You know, and I think part of this has to do with growing up in the fantastically bizarre state of Wisconsin. Um, Of course, we have a very rich paranormal history. And, you know, growing up, I was exposed to a lot of that. Uh, Specifically, I spent a lot of time with my mom's mom, uh, my grandma, who lives in Platteville, Wisconsin, which is in the area known as the Driftless Area. And it's got a really rich folklore. Not only that, but also two members of my family also experienced strange phenomena. They had their own personal experiences with mainly haunting-type activity and also UFO sightings. There's that. And then when I was really little, my grandma actually had, and I can remember specifically, she had these Reader's Digest compendiums of like marvels and mysteries. Strange Stories, Amazing Facts was the other one. And so as soon as I learned how to read, I just absolutely loved those. You know, I was going through and all of the weird, very Fordian stories that they included in there had a really marked imprint on me. It was really solidified, however, when I was eight years old. And my mom thought that it might be fun to look into Bigfoot. Now, she remembered growing up in the 70s and all of those, like, you know, documentaries like the Peter Graves um, Monsters and Mysteries, where they talked about Bigfoot. And at the time, she really looked at it kind of as like an urban legend. She was like, okay, this will be fun. Nothing scary here. You know, it's kind of unbelievable, this giant, you know, ape-like thing living in America. So we can look into that and that'll just be a fun time. Well, her plan didn't really work out exactly how she thought it would, because not only did she start to realize, hey, there seems to be more than just, you know, hoaxes and urban legends to the Bigfoot phenomenon. And now she even has a pretty devout interest in Bigfoot. But I was absolutely hooked. So at the age of eight was when I really decided that cryptozoology, that was going to be kind of my life's mission. And that was further solidified when I was 10 years old and I got to meet Wisconsin researcher Linda Godfrey, of course, who has researched and investigated the Beast of Bray Road and assorted phenomena like that. Less than a year later, I got to meet Chad Lewis, another Wisconsin researcher. And really from that point on, the rest was history. So even though I started with, again, a really devout interest in cryptozoology and from the flesh and blood standpoint, um, my interest really did kind of wander through all related fields, um, especially, you know, spectrology and ufology into its current scope. When I was in my late teens, I rediscovered John Keel's work through the Mothman Prophecies. And it actually wasn't the Mothman Prophecies, it was Operation Trojan Horse that kind of awakened me to the idea that these apparently different fields may actually be kind of interrelated and to look at things from a more high strangeness angle. Well, I was just—I was just going to say. So, uh, did your mom regret <laughs> getting you involved at first with Bigfoot? You know, now now she looks back and says, "You know, if I had just uh, gone with uh, paper cutout dolls or something like that, we wouldn't be here today." I know, right? No, she actually—you know—so many people face a lot of. Um, kind of discrimination or even just kind of like people trying to laugh it off, especially in their families, for being interested in this field. And thankfully, my mom and even a lot of my, you know, extended um, family, like my grandma especially, they're all really supportive of me. And they think that, you know, they see my passion for this and they're like, she couldn't be doing anything else. 
Do you actually have a day job or is this it? Um, I do. On the flip side, I also am very much into costuming. So my day job is as a costume seller and maker. So two kind of bizarre sort of off the wall things, but I make it work. What kind of costumes? Mainly um, like film and TV and anime recreations and stuff like that. Um, I focus mainly on accessories because, um, you know, actual like the physical um, whole outfits are really I do all of my work remote. So getting those measurements down is pretty difficult unless you can work with someone like, you know, who's able to visit you and you can take the proper measurements and tailor it and everything like that. But mainly like accessories. Um, I actually started that weirdly enough with classical millinery. I was obsessed with the Victorian era in my mid teens. And so I learned classic millinery and hat making techniques. Um, And it kind of spiraled from there. So do you work with the film industry, TV industry, plays, what? Nope. Um, it's just all through my shop online. I'm actually an Etsy seller. That's how I have my products available for people. That's the fancy eBay if you want something really yes. different. <laughs> you go to Etsy. Oh, yeah. I, I, I know this because my wife was looking for a mask. Obviously, we have to wear masks nowadays. The mask that was fancy, that looked different. And she went yeah. to Etsy for it. We have Zelia, we have Tim, we have Jean. And that means you're in the Paracast. Hey, listeners, I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. With After the Paracast, you never know what's going to happen next. After the Paracast features color commentary, special interviews, and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus. If you're like most Americans, you're pretty much in disbelief with what's going on in the world. As we all know, global problems are having local consequences. Too many of them. And if the peanut butter really hits the fan, are you ready? Grocery store supply chains are only as strong as their weakest link. Don't wait for them to break. Now's the time to secure emergency food for everyone in your family. My Patriot Supply is America's largest preparedness company. Our specially packaged and delicious food stays fresh for up to 25 years in storage. It'll be there when you need it. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and pick up several emergency food kits. There are a dozen different sizes that average over 2,000 calories per day. Our food kits will ship quickly and discreetly to your door. Having food storage in your home beats government food lines hands down. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com today and prepare for what's coming. MyPatriotSupply.com Hi, I'm Dan Pilla. I started fighting the IRS over 40 years ago when they tried to seize my mother's house. I sued the IRS and won. I beat the IRS then, and I've been beating them ever since. I wrote the book on tax debt settlement, and I've helped thousands of people deal with tax problems they thought might never be solved. I can help you too. If you owe taxes you can't pay, don't wait another day. 
There's no such thing as a hopeless tax case. Call 800-34-NO-TAX or go to my website, danpilla.com. That's danpilla.com, danpilla.com. Hey folks, Tom D. for ParanormalDate.com. Are you looking for love in all the wrong places? Now you have a chance to change that by signing up free at ParanormalDate.com. This incredible dating site puts people of like minds together. People who are interested in the strange, the unusual, ghosts, zombies, UFOs, crop circles, and more. ParanormalDate.com was developed for you, people who seek a little more than the other dating services offer. You can join for free by going to ParanormalDate.com, and if you decide you like it and you want to connect with others, use the code GEORGE for a substantial discount. So many people want to share their experiences with the paranormal, the afterlife, the unusual, and this is the place to meet and share common interests with those of like minds. So sign up for free at ParanormalDate.com. That's ParanormalDate.com. Use the code word GEORGE and start meeting others. Get going now and connect with someone you like. Complement your health with hemp-derived cannabinoid oil. We've always believed that the closer to Earth, the better it is for our bodies. Our hemp-derived cannabinoid oil is phytocannabinoid-rich, full-spectrum, and organically grown. Finally, hemp made easy, clean, and effective. GCNHemp.com or call 877-878-4203. That's right, we cut through the red tape. It's now available at GCNHemp.com or call 877-878-4203. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. The ghostly voices of Tim Swartz. Okay, Zelia, we know that you got involved in this at a real young age. Do you, have you ever seen or experienced anything weird? Yes, I have. And the really funny thing about it, because I've been asked, you know, that question quite a bit on different podcasts and stuff like that. And one person finally asked me, they were like, so do you think this has something to do with your interest? And weirdly enough, it took until that question for me to put two and two together and be like, oh, yeah, I am really interested in the paranormal. And I also happen to have had pretty much a lifetime of experiences, not anything super dramatic. And also like, you know, not very consistently, but here and there definitely had some out of the ordinary experiences. And the funny thing is, I really when I you know, look back on it, it's kind of like I just cataloged them away as another case, if that makes sense. So, yeah, and actually, too, you know, I mentioned previously that my extended family has also had a wealth of experiences. So, yeah, kind of an interesting history there. Can you tell us a few specific cases where things were just so weird you knew there was something unusual going on? Sure thing. So my experiences have been mainly relegated to haunting type activity, UFO type activity. And in my particular way of looking at things, you know, I truly don't know if there's much of a distinction, but that's a whole nother topic. One of the weirdest haunting type occurrences happened many years ago. Actually, my house is a Victorian Gothic revival. And so my family knows every single family that it's been. We actually know where the original builder is buried. We visit his grave on his death day, which is a little macabre, but, you know, pay respects and all that. A and, little macabre? You know, just a touch, right? Oh, yeah, just a tad. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, it's really cool because it really it's only been in five families and then us. It's amazing to see that history, you know, and to be able to be like, okay, these are the people who lived here, and uh, that just happens to be their headstone. Um, 
this is the setting for this account. And again, this was many years ago, so I've got two younger sisters, and we were all kids. And the house actually came with a large picture mirror that was in the living room. And I really wonder if it actually was original to the house because it was very old. And yeah, it just came with the house. And so in this picture mirror, we actually you know, had the TV kind of in front of it, but you could still see, it was a huge mirror, so you could still see quite a bit reflected. And what you could really see reflected was actually the stairs leading to the second story. And so my mom had this friend of hers, and you know that as soon as she was on the phone with this lady, it was going to be like three hours. So on those evenings, my sisters and I would usually just watch cartoons. This particular night, she had just gone upstairs like about 20 minutes earlier, and we're watching SpongeBob, when all of a sudden I heard my mom come down the stairs, and in the picture mirror, I could see that she was descending the staircase. And so I paused the show, and my sisters were looking at me like, why'd you do that? You know, we'd want to watch SpongeBob. And so I was like, well, mom's coming downstairs. And then she just didn't enter the dining room or the living room from then. And so I was really confused because I also didn't see her go back up the stairs. It was one of those things where, you know, I kind of was like, just sort of tried to brush it off. I resumed the show, obviously. The night went on. Both of them fell asleep eventually. And then suddenly I was sitting there alone thinking about it. And so when my mom came downstairs, because this was also shortly after we moved into the house, so that would have been gosh, probably in 2010 sometime. So that's a while ago now. So when my mom came downstairs, you know, I kind of pulled her aside and I was like, hey, I don't know how to explain this, but did you come down the stairs at some point during the night? And she said, no, she hadn't. But she got this weird look on her face. So she asked me why I thought she had come downstairs. And I was like, well, I thought I saw you in the mirror. But then I was realizing at the time, too, she wasn't wearing the same outfit that I had seen the person on the staircase wearing. And her hair was also different. The person on the staircase had been wearing white with um, long dark brown hair parted in the middle. And that's not how my mom was wearing her hair. That's not what she was wearing at that time. She asked me then, and again, this weird look on her face was just growing weirder. And she asked me what time it was. And I was like, well, it was about 20 minutes after you went upstairs. And then she looked freaked out. And she told me that about 20 minutes after she had gone upstairs, her bedroom door opened. And she turned around and asked, you know, she was like, what do you want, sweetie? Because she thought it was one of us. However, no one was there. So at around the same time, we both had a bizarre experience um, that you can't really account for very easily. Oh, boy. And how old were you again? Gosh, if that was 2010, I would have been probably around like 14, depending on when it was in the year. So you're what, 25, 26 now? Yeah, I'm going to be 26 in about a month. Oh, February what? March 7th. Oh, March 7th. I guess I'm jumping the gun a little bit. I always do that. Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. My brother, my late brother, the former pharmacy executive was March 13th. And my son is February 19. And that's significant because that is one of the versions of Batman's birthday. Oh, seriously? Seriously. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. And the young man who played the young Bruce Wayne in the TV show Gotham, David Marsus. Yeah. He also was born on February 19th. One of my favorite shows you just mentioned there, actually. Gotham. I know there's, yes, I know there's some differing opinions on it, but man, I liked that. But I'm a major Batman fan, too, though. But March 7th, two weird claim to fame. Stanley Kubrick and Woodrow Derenberger apparently died on March 7th. So, again, why, why slightly macabre? But there it is. Are you into the TV show Batwoman? I, no, I haven't seen that one yet. Is, I didn't even know that was out. I'd heard something about it a while ago. Okay, this is on the CW. 
same network that has all the superhero shows like The Flash and now Superman and Lois and everything. The only thing is here is that they had one actor, the cousin of Bruce Wayne, playing Batwoman in the first season. She quit the show, and there's a dispute over why. And so they had another person take over as Batwoman. So we had the white Batwoman. Now we have the black Batwoman, and she's in her second year. Now, the only thing I could say is I think you'll get into the show. They've got Poison Ivy now as the main big bad and yeah. a couple of others. I got lost on Gotham when the villains became more and more bizarre. I really did. I liked it the first couple of years, and then it got crazy. This show hasn't gotten crazy yet, so you might want to try catching up on it. I don't know where you'd find it. Maybe on Netflix if you want to look at the old seasons. Or maybe no. Or maybe HBO Max, which is owned by Warner. So that might be another place where you can find the older episodes if you want to just see what they're doing before you catch up with the current season. Because like all these shows, they've got these endless series arcs. So if you tune in at random... Yeah. Like episode seven, you wonder what the heck is going on. It's not like a law and order or something where it's like yeah. a new show every week here. It's, you know, it's kind of like a mixture. So you have to do things like that. I don't know why we're getting started with this. You've seen UFOs? Yes, um, on several occasions. So tell us about those sightings. So one of the most dramatic actually occurred, I believe, in March of 2011. And it was... A really interesting sighting, and that, I will say, did kickstart a special interest I have in um, light anomalies, specifically the orb phenomenon, um, because it was this overcast night in March, and the cloud cover was, like, really, really low in the sky, um, just kind of to paint a picture of how the atmosphere was at the time. And my sisters and I were in the house. My mom had gone out to do some shopping, and suddenly she gave us a call, and she said, you got to go outside. There's something in the sky. We'll be right back. With more action. Jillia, by the way, is probably the youngest guest we've ever featured on the show. <laughs> because I guess everybody we have is, you know, 83 or something. We have Tim Swartz, who isn't quite that old. Gene Steinberg, who's getting there. You're in The, the Paracast. <laughs> Visit GCNlive.com today. Silver has always been nature's very own antibiotic, and only one system allows you to generate an endless supply of natural silver solutions. Silverlungs.com. You'll find no wild claims or pseudoscience, just a lifetime of nano-sized pure silver solutions. The Silver Lungs generator allows you to make your own, so stop paying for silver solutions. The unique lung delivery system targets respiratory infections where other silver solutions simply cannot reach. See the Silver Lungs generator and lung delivery system at Silverlungs.com. That's Silverlungs.com. What if you could cut your heating bills this winter with your existing wood-burning fireplace and not spend thousands doing it? You can with Great Wall of Fire Fireplace Grates. Our U.S. patented, made-in-America Wall of Fire Grates increase fireplace efficiency, eliminate fireplace smoke problems, and come with a 30-day money-back guarantee. See our grates in action and get free shipping from walloffire.com or call 800-274-7364. Fireplace heat without fireplace smoke. Walloffire.com. USA Radio News with Wendy King. The U.S. East Coast is battling blizzard conditions, with many places now reporting whiteout conditions. 
officials are telling people to not travel if they don't have to. New York Governor Kathy Hochul. High winds, heavy snow, blizzard conditions, all the elements of a classic nor'easter, and that's what we're dealing with right now. In New Rochelle, New York, a snowplow driver is reinforcing just how dangerous it is on the roads. I expected worse. Just keep scraping until it stops and we can salt it up. Over 10 million people in the Northeast are under blizzard warnings. The National Weather Service is warning that the nor'easter could bring near-record snowfall and blizzard conditions to most of New England. Power outages are widespread, and thousands of flights have been canceled due to the storm. This is USA Radio News. A new strain of the Omicron variant has been detected. Just as the Omicron variant starts to die down in parts of the United States, scientists have their eye on another coronavirus variant spreading rapidly in parts of Asia and Europe. It's officially called Omicron BA.2. And this week, cases were detected in California, Texas, and Washington. As far as how these new variants are detected, Dr. Diane Hess tells USA Radio News. So we don't know much about the new variant. So really, variants are not tested frequently. Probably less than 20% of all COVID tests have variant testing done. Those are tests that are done in the state health department level usually. Even physicians who are treating patients like critical care patients in the hospital, they don't know what variant their patients have. Usually, if you find out the variant, it'll probably be weeks later because it's just not a test that's done commonly and it's not done in the hospital often. From the USA Radio News Phoenix Bureau, I'm Tim Berg. Hi, I'm Dr. Joel Wallach, the Dead Doctors Don't Lie guy. There's no reason why you shouldn't live to be at least 100 and have a great time getting there. And I'm going to give you a free copy of my lecture that tells you exactly how to do it. In fact, after you've lived a long and healthy life, there should be only two documents in your medical chart, a birth certificate and a death certificate. I'm Dr. Wallach with a warning. If you have a four-inch medical chart, if you take prescription drugs for high cholesterol, high blood pressure, arthritis, joint pains, and other health issues, the medical profession is failing you. They're using you for an ATM machine. My free lecture is going to reveal what pharmaceutical companies don't want you to know. There's been groundbreaking research and discoveries on how to effectively treat or eliminate over 900 different diseases naturally. It's all in my free lecture called Deadly Recipe. So call toll-free 1-855-79-YOUNG. Again, that's toll-free 1-855-79-YOUNG. 1-855-79-YOUNG. This is me, the Merciless. You are listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio, exactly according to my plan. I'll tell you what, if I start sounding like that, put me away. (laughs) Zelia, let's get back to the kind of sighting you were talking about. Sure thing, but you can't make me laugh like that right before a break. That was hilarious. Anyways, yeah, so my mom calls with that fantastic X-Files line, there's something in the sky. So my sisters and I run outside, and sure enough, it was amazing to see because hanging in the sky, I want to say only about two, two and a half stories in the air, there are these four perfectly spherical kind of amber, orangish lights. What had apparently occurred is my mom was driving back from the store when she looked and she thought she saw um, a huge construction crane. You know, with big lights on it. And then suddenly she realized that in the sprawling metropolis of Beaver Dam, there actually was no giant construction site at that time. 
then she realized that as a matter of fact, there was actually nothing underneath the lights. You know, they weren't attached to anything. They were simply these four lights in the sky. So that's when she called us. We went outside and sure enough, there they were. Immediately, my first thought is it's really easy to mistake, you know, glow balloons or those like the Chinese lanterns for something truly anomalous. But these things, there was no mistaking them. Um, They were perfectly spherical. It wasn't like a flickering light. It was a totally even kind of glow. They were low enough that you could really make out, you know, the detail or lack thereof. And you could also make out that there was absolutely nothing behind them, yet they were traveling very slowly in this fixed parallelogram type formation. And so my mom pulled up, got out of the car, and we're just watching them. And then one by one, they started blinking very slowly, but, you know, in a very fixed sort of pattern. One would start blinking, and then it would blink faster, and then it was gone. And then the next did the same, and the next did the same, and the next did the same. And again, to rule out the Chinese lantern thing, nothing remained when the lights went out. They just absolutely vanished. My favorite part of the story, though, is the fact that we were standing there, you know, just waiting to see if possibly something else might happen, or, you know, they might come back or whatever. And this kid comes tearing down the road, and he cuts across our lawn, across the street, and he goes into his house and he slams the door. And so, of course, we're all standing there like, well, he obviously saw something. So my mom and I trekked across the street, knocked on the door. This kid answers, and he is terrified. (laughs) We didn't even need to formulate the entire question of, did you see those lights? When he started shaking his head and going, no, 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 you don't get it. I was at the Washington School Playground, and they came over. Then they came over again. And so apparently he must have thought that, you know, this was finally the Martian invasion or something and decided that he should run home because you could tell he was he was totally shaken by what he'd observed. And, you know, that's it's interesting because, I mean, there was nothing malevolent or, you know, even super duper close about this sighting, but it still had such an effect on this kid. You know, yeah, it was truly amazing, though. You see that, though, with a lot of people who have had somewhat close encounters like that with uh, object in the sky where they're just suddenly possessed with this unreasonable fear. Afterwards, they can't even explain why they suddenly got so afraid. So, I mean, you know, I could I could see this kid, you know, suddenly hit with this overwhelming fear and for a lot of people who have had no previous experience or no real knowledge of the phenomena. It really can. I mean, it it can just overwhelm your brain. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can't imagine, like, that is the one problem with having been so interested in this for so long, is that I do feel like I'm a little bit dulled to, like, you know, if something, when something happens, if it were to happen, I'm, oh, I always wonder how my response would be, you know, if I'd be too busy kind of cataloging it to really experience it. <laughs> well, that's like uh, the uh, ghostly phenomena. You had said in the in the previous part of the show that you know you weren't sure whether or not your personal experiences may have anything to do with your interest in the subject but i think that it goes along the lines of because people like us are so aware of this that when anything extraordinary happens you're just you know immediately honed in on it while other people if something weird happens, you know, a lot of people's natural reaction is, uh, well, you know, they'll just ignore it or there has to be a logical explanation and then just just forget about it. While you and me and Gene, we just immediately like, oh, that's weird. 
I gotta write this down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and one of the other things I wanted to comment from uh, when you were talking about your experience when you were 14 years old. I mean, uh, that's that is a very common um, haunting phenomena of uh, the. Uh, like a doppelganger type mm, yes. where uh, – and I've seen it a lot in poltergeist, you know, where normally you don't see any kind of apparitions. But a lot of times when you do, it tends to mimic somebody uh, from the household. Well, and the eeriest thing about it too, and this I didn't piece together for quite some time, is my mom has had consistently like throughout her life – people who see, quote-unquote, her doppelganger. Um, not just, you know, uh, my sisters and I who have had many experiences in the house where, and these were mainly when we were younger, um, we would think that she was uh, would wake us up in the morning. And I know, too, you know, whenever there's something that occurs at the boundary between sleep and wakefulness, there's always some question there as to whether it's hypnagogia or what. Um, but, yeah, that was a pretty common occurrence that just kind of petered out as we got older. But she had a very dramatic um, I almost look at it as kind of an out-of-body experience when she was young, actually, um, that also included a previous UFO sighting with a sister of hers. Um, so I could get into that if you guys would like oh, to yeah. hear it. Oh, yeah. Details, please. <laughs> of course. So this occurred, oh, gosh, I'm terrible with years and uh, ages, but I believe my mom was probably around 10 years old when the first occurrence happened, 10 or 11. It actually comes from a very large family. She's one of nine siblings, and seven of those are girls. So she was with one of her older sisters at this time. So it starts out that my mom was watching TV downstairs. And incidentally, too, I should probably say the house where they were currently living at this time had a lot of classic haunting-type activity, um, including really kind of outlandish stuff such as like prophetic dreams and even cases of ESP. Hmm. And so that was the house where they were living. Now, my mom was watching TV downstairs, and she was underneath the room, which they had literally called the ghost room, because no matter who had that as their bedroom at the time, they would have experiences, whether it was bed shaking or, again, the prophetic dreams, um, really intense um, activity there. So her older sister was up in the ghost room, which was her room at the time. Now, this is where the story gets interesting. And for years before I was really interested specifically in ufology and especially high strangeness ufology, it never made much sense to me because they were in those two separate locations and suddenly they were next to each other watching an object that my mom first thought was the moon outside of the window. And at this point in time, they were both downstairs. And suddenly my mom, according to her recollection, said that she realized it wasn't the moon because the moon was actually over in another direction. So they were just looking at this large glowing object in the sky. My mom remembers seeing it fade away in a kind of mist, while my aunt remembers saying, let's just go to bed. So that was the you know UFO encounter. Now, after that, about a year later, my aunt had actually moved out to an apartment in the same city, um, but she was not in the house at the time. And she woke up in the middle of the night and saw my mom standing in her bedroom. And so she apparently was really confused as to what my mom would be doing in her apartment in the dead of night. And so she turned the light on and said, Lori, what are you doing here? And my mom was gone. Now, again, we could write this off as hypnagogia, but there's a little fact that makes it very strange. And that's the fact that she could properly ID exactly what my mom was wearing and how her hair was styled the night before. Um, even though, of course, she wasn't actually at that location. And my aunt actually also has had recurrent um, 
strange dreams involving orbs of light. Um, she's had other dreams involving like out-of-body type experiences following this sighting. So that's one of the weirdest things um, kind of in my family's weird history. Well, you think here, of course, that because your family has this weird history that you inherited the disease? (laughs) So to speak, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I know a lot of uh, researchers speculate that it seems as though this phenomenon follows families. Um, You know, I don't know how much there is to that. You know, I do wonder... It does, at least in my case, it really seems as though we all, for some reason, are just likelier to experience things. Because I have cousins that have had um, UFO encounters, nothing as dramatic as, you know, the ones that I've had or that my mom and my aunt have had. Um, But, you know, just here and there, you know, just it seems as though odd stuff does pop up wherever we are. We're going to be somewhere in a moment. Zelia, Jean, and Tim, you're in. The Paracast. for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code. They're offering substantial hosting discounts on shared hosting, business hosting, VPS hosting, reseller hosting, and even dedicated servers. Namecheap is preferred by millions. It's backed by a money-back guarantee. Use the coupon code LEGENDARY to cash in on the special deal at Namecheap.com, Namecheap.com. First came Attack of the Rockoids, and it was a critically acclaimed success. And now there is the coming of the Protectors. A former military intelligence man is contacted by a space woman in a dream, a dream that turns out to be a nightmare because evil forces on our distant planet are planning to conquer the Earth. This is gripping science fiction of the classic kind. Attack of the Rockoids and the coming of the protectors find out more at rockoids.com that's rockoids r-o-c-k-o-i-d-s.com anytime any place anywhere radio remains the most intimate of all forms of media at home at work in the car on smartphones over 90 percent of consumers still listen to radio every week that makes choosing radio as a place to advertise your business one of the best decisions you can make email advertise at gcnlive.com and partner up with an experienced gcn representative advertise at gcnlive.com easy affordable effective Has your body ever gone low blood sugar feeling weak, shaky, knowing you better eat something fast? We all know high blood sugar can lead to many metabolic problems. At GCNteam.com, we have a healthy blood sugar pack, focusing on the structure and function of stable blood sugar. Find us at GCNteam.com or call 877-878-4203. Nothing feels worse than unstable blood sugar. Call 877-878-4203. That's 877-878-4203. Tehebo Tea Club's original Pure Pouty Arco Super Tea helps build red corpuscles in the blood, which carry oxygen to our organs and cells. Our organs and cells need oxygen to regenerate themselves. The immune system needs oxygen to develop, and cancer dies in oxygen. So the tea is great for healthy people because it helps build the immune system, and it can truly be miraculous for someone fighting a potentially life-threatening disease due to an infection, diabetes, or cancer. The tea is also organic and naturally caffeine-free. A one-pound package of tea is $49.95, which includes shipping. To order, please visit shopsupertea.com. The first word is shop, spelled S-H-O-P, then the word super, and then the word tea. 
The complete website is shopsupertea.com or call us at 818-984-6100 Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. California time. That's 818-984-6100, shopsupertea.com. Stop aging now. Restore those joints. Boost your strength. Because it's official. Nutramedical has released the most exciting, powerful anti-aging supplement on the market. Dr. Bill Deagle's Red Deer Velvet DR has been approved by the U.S. Patent Office. Imagine stem cell rejuvenation all in one capsule without huge expense. Dr. Bill MD discovered that as an unborn baby grows in the mother's womb, he or she does not deteriorate or physically age. Red Deer Velvet DR, like the uterus, provides 300 biomolecules and six hormones protected in one special DR capsule that delivers lipid packages directly into your circulation. This patented technology bypasses the stomach and is released into the small bowel unaltered by digestive enzymes and stomach acid. Remember, Red Deer Velvet DR. Improve endurance, stimulate your immune system, increase learning ability, and even improve sexual libido with Red Deer Velvet DR. Click NutriMedical.com. That's N-U-T-R-I Medical.com. Or call toll-free 888-212-8871 and get on the road to a newer, rejuvenated, happier you. Hi, this is James Fox. You're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. From Brooklyn, New York, the one and only Tim Swartz. Yeah, that's right. You're trying to be someone from Brooklyn, okay? (laughs) Zelia Edgar joining us this week on the Paracast. She is author of a book called Just Another Tinfoil Hat Presents. And she's presenting right now her own personal experiences and that of her family, which becomes fascinating, unusual. And what about your neighbors and friends? Have they had weird stuff happen to them? Neighbors, not that I know of, but um, don't really talk to my neighbors much. (laughs) I'm sort of joking there. Okay, therein Um, lies a tale. Speak more. (laughs) Oh, no, just nothing. Just they're kind of keep to themselves sort of people. So that's, you know, that's how it is. But no, that the neighbor. It's not the, the Adams family, is it? <laughs> well, as I said, it is a Gothic Victorian house that I live in. So you can take that as you will. As a matter of fact, people in town do refer to it as the haunted house, which is kind of funny. Because <laughs> um, my sister's best friend, girl that lives down the street, they've been friends for like I think 12 years now, like they've grown up together. Her brother heard through his work or something like that. When we moved in, I guess a bunch of people were like, well, someone moved into that house. So, you know, I think it has a lot to do with the fact, I mean, it is, it's a classic Gothic Victorian. It's built in the shape of a cross to resemble the old cathedrals. Um, We've got these four kind of twisted gnarled trees out front. So it, you know, it fits that bill. Yeah, some friends of mine, you know, I mean, I open, whenever I meet someone new, I kind of open with the icebreaker of, hey, have you ever seen a UFO? You know, it gets varied reactions, but I'm, I was surprised the majority have been positive. You know, not positive as, yes, I have, but positive as, like, you know, interested. Even though a surprising number of people will come forward and be like, you know, there was this one time. And then they go on to say the one time. And that's always fun. You know, years ago, the late Stan Friedman would tell us, at his lectures, he would ask people how many saw UFO and hands would be raised. Pretty decent number. And then how many of you reported that experience? And very few hands would remain up. Yep. Because I think you can ask people all over the place, have you had anything weird happen to you? And somewhere along the line, 
For many people, they'll say yes. But I want to focus here as we get on with your past to the future. This book, what was the intent to cover in this book? Because tinfoil hat, of course, has a funny meaning. It's an interesting title. So obviously you're covering some unusual events, which I'm going to ask you about specifically in a moment. But what was your thought in mind in putting this book together? Well, for one thing, um, writing a book and specifically a paranormal book, this has been like pretty much a lifelong dream of mine. So uh, every time I like, you know, see the book, I'm actually like, this is just so surreal. Like I couldn't be happier with the fact that it's actually come to fruition. So that to me has been very important to me um, to get that out there because growing up, you know, I was so interested in this that it was the researchers, the investigators and the authors. Those were the people I really looked up to. Yeah, it just, it means so much to me. So my book is kind of, I consider it sort of a companion piece to my YouTube channel because each of the cases that I've included in the book, I've previously covered on my channel. However, in the book, I was able to include more information um, and spend a little bit more time specifically on the speculation regarding these cases, which was just phenomenal because I really, I love to be able to kind of theorize and postulate what these bizarre occurrences might mean. And so to be able to have more space to include extra facts and to, you know, kind of ruminate on them longer and, of course, to kind of have an inconclusive conclusion, so to speak, um, that was just it was phenomenal to be able to kind of have that space to do that. And, yeah, you know, I do try and keep I mean, obviously, I look at the paranormal in a very serious light. Um, so often it is relegated just to kind of be the comedic end of the newsreel um, type thing. And that's definitely not how it should be treated. On the flip side, I do also try and treat it, um, you know, on the flip side of being respectful of it, I also try and maintain kind of, you know, a decent sense of humor about it. Because it seems to me that there is some element of the paranormal that is kind of trickster-esque, you know, and it does kind of seek to sort of befuddle and confuse in, you know, my experience with it and also my experience going through these many cases. And so I think that that's one of the best ways to kind of not lose yourself is to sort of reflect that back towards it. So it's this kind of blend of, you know, yeah, we have to take this seriously, but not take ourselves too seriously. Speaking of which, case number nine. This goes back to something like 1960, Eagle River, Wisconsin, Joe Simonton. Now, I should tell you that years and years ago, I used to listen to the late Long John Nepple's all-night radio show. He was the pioneer of paranormal radio broadcasters, ahead of Art Bell. And everybody, there was Long John. We wouldn't have this kind of radio if it was not for Long John. So he has on this farmer from Eagle River, Wisconsin. And, you know, it's so easy to dismiss this as just another wacky contact claim. But it always struck me as being something a bit more. Tell us about it. Well, you have just brought up possibly my all-time favorite case. And that is a difficult thing for me to say because each of these cases is near and dear to me. But Joe Simonton... He's that encounter is in a league of its own, in my opinion. And yeah, it also occurred in my home state of Wisconsin, which I mean, that's just an added bonus for me. So in April of 1961, chicken farmer and plumber Joe Simonton and also part time Santa Claus. I always forget that. Apparently he um, would dress up as Santa Claus for the Eagle River Christmas events. You know, and by all accounts, I actually was able to dig up a lot of old newspaper articles about this particular case because it made the rounds, especially in Wisconsin, even the Madison papers carried articles on it. So he seemed to be, you know, a very respected kind of member of the community, you know, not just some 
kook that, you know, just sort of would make stuff up for fun. So anyway, he was eating breakfast around 11 o'clock in the morning when he said that what first caught his attention was this bizarre noise coming from outside of his house. He said that it sounded like knobby tires on wet pavement. Upon looking outside, he saw... By all, for all intents and purposes, a classic mid-century saucer. He claimed that it looked like two inverted bowls put together with these exhaust pipes around the rim. and It was made out of this gleaming, shiny silver material. So he went outside for a closer look. And when he approached the object, a hatch opened in the side of it. And inside he could see three beings. And he claimed that they looked like short Italian men. They were each wearing an identical turtleneck two-piece suit with a matching black like knit helmet. Um, and the leader, the person he believed was leader, was denoted as such by a red track stripe down the side of the pant leg. Now, the leader approached the hatch and passed Simonton this luminous goblet, which appeared to be made out of the same material as the craft. And somehow Simonton took it as meaning that they needed water. So, and this is just so kind of weird Wisconsin sort of mannerism. Simonton wasn't really freaked out. He was just like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll get you some water. So he went inside, he got the water, he came back, and he traded the water to the being for three of the alien pancakes. Now, you can actually find a picture of Simonton holding on to one of the pancakes, and it doesn't really look like a pancake at all. It kind of looks more like this, almost like a twill cookie or a really strange type of cracker. It's perforated with these holes in it. He took the three pancakes and no sooner did he do so, but the being then was kind of retracted back into the saucer by this weird hook on the back of its clothing connected to almost like a pulley. And then the hatch closed and the saucer shot off into the sky. So obviously, it's a very strange encounter, um, even if we just look at the fact that he was able to um, be so close to the entities he exchanged for the water. But the alien pancakes have got to be the weirdest aspect of this case. I want to ask you about that because they analyzed these pancakes. But before I do that, we should point out something, too. This guy did not have a track record of being deceptive. And understand also, those of us from the big city don't realize that the esteemed responsible business people in small communities could be farmers. What's his Mm -hmm. name? Senator John Tester. He's from Montana an esteemed member of yeah. the Senate, he's a farmer. Oh, exactly. And, you know, that's really common. You know, again, I've grown up in small Wisconsin towns, and, yeah, some of the most respected members of the community often are farmers. And, you know, too, I mean, if you actually look at how this case went down, um, there was a local judge that knew Simonton that even interviewed him. And even though he kind of, you know, was tongue-in-cheek about the beings, because, of course, he asked if they looked like Martians, effectively, you know, at the end of the day, he vouched, too, for Simonton's honesty. And, you know, pretty much kind of the vibe was also, why would he make something like this up? Um, And, of course, after everything was said and done, Simonton also said that because of all the fuss and how it all turned out, If he had other encounters, he actually would not report them. Um, I was able to find one account by a researcher from, I think, a Detroit-based UFO research group that claimed that he did visit with Simonton many years later. And Simonton told him confidentially that he had had further encounters, but he would never go public with them. We're going to have more about Joe Simonton and the analysis of that flapjack. Is it something that maybe they should produce over at McDonald's, mass production? Hmm. Zelia, Sheen, and Tim, you're in the Paracast. Thank 
you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. Hey, listeners. I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. With After the Paracast, you never know what's going to happen next. After the Paracast features color commentary, special interviews, and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus. I know I need to pay attention to my health, but I just can't seem to find the time. Between rushing to work and taking care of the kids, there's not much time left over for me. So I decided to start small by eating more fruits and vegetables and being more active. And then I got the family to make some changes, too. We started by keeping a bowl of fresh fruit on the counter, and I limit the amount of sweet snacks I keep in the house. I've also found some creative ways to add more vegetables to our meals. We're taking more walks, and on the weekends, we head down to the pool at the rec center. It doesn't happen every day, but it does happen. You don't have to change your entire life to be healthier. Just make some simple changes and include your family. You'll see how easy and fun it can be. You can make a difference. Eat smart, play hard. And when you do, your kids will too. A challenge from USDA. Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. Okay, let's talk about pancakes. They were analyzed. And what did they find out, Zelia? Well, this is one of those kind of placemark cases for me, because when I first came across the Simonton encounter, I was very much into conventional ufology, you know, the nuts and bolts saucers, the extraterrestrial hypothesis. And so when I heard that the pancakes had been identified as being comprised of purely terrestrial materials, I immediately said, cover up. I was like, the Air Force got a hold of these, you know, genuine space pancakes, and they just couldn't have it come out that they were actually made out of, who knows, Martian moon dust or whatever. So they replaced them with these normal, boring terrestrial pancakes. Um, Obviously, my outlook has matured a little bit since that time. Because it's true, the pancakes came back as being comprised out of earthly materials, specifically wheat hulls. Um, I think there was like a hydrogenated fat of some sort. Other different types of grains were mixed in. And interestingly enough, too, barring any concerns about, you know, alien viruses or radiation poisoning, Simonton actually tasted one, and he said that it tasted like cardboard. So there's also that. Now, interestingly enough, though, I still view these pancakes as one of the most intriguing aspects of this encounter, because if you look at what happened at the time, when it came back that these were earthly pancakes, even though they weren't pancakes as anyone would enjoy them, they were these just bizarre, again, like perforated, almost cracker-like biscuit things. 
everyone dropped this case. It was signed off as psychological. The UFO research groups really kind of dropped their interest in it. And Simonton was branded as, you know, someone who had had some sort of bizarre hallucination that he then acted out by making these pancakes, um, which, of course, led to him just being done with the whole thing and saying that he would never come forward again with further encounters. Let me throw something out before you go on with explaining this. And that is we assume that anything alien, and I'm not saying this was alien. There are a lot of other things we can talk about, and I know you will. We have been looking at extrasolar planets, and they seem to have similar structures to what we have at Earth. So the content of ingredients and minerals and all that could be very similar to what we have here. So, for example, if we examine a spaceship and it's made of some kind of common alloy, we can say, well, it can't be alien because we could produce it ourselves. But maybe those beings who live on other worlds are using the same elements that we do. Zelia, go ahead about the pancakes. Absolutely. I mean, that is definitely an option. Um, The other option, too, the thing that I have now kind of my personal stance on it is that if you look at this case as an isolated UFO encounter, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, why would, if we're looking at this in the extraterrestrial hypothesis, why would alien beings from an advanced civilization need to trade water in the first place? Why would they then give out these alien pancakes? And yeah, why would they be comprised of earthly materials? Obviously, there's a few different explanations as to how that would be. However, if we look at this in the much more um, long-running historical and folkloric sense, This encounter, 100, 200 years ago, actually can be found in a completely different belief system, and that is the fairy faith. Surprisingly enough, and this was mainly pointed out by Jacques Vallée in Passport to Magonia, even the fact that they were these flat bread or cake-like materials, that is consistent with dozens of encounters with the good folk or the fairies, um, where people would often trade water specifically for flatbreads. It's a very intriguing concept that we have effectively the same encounter that would have occurred maybe 200 years ago in a, deli- a different cultural backdrop on um, being described in a different sort of taxonomy and a different belief system, almost modernized in the case of Joe Simonton. Another connection to these old stories is that the Simonton pancakes were completely devoid of salt, yep. which was forbidden for the, uh, the, the fae. Yep, the good folk could taste of no salt, yeah. That, too, is in um, Passport to Magonia, and that did make, well, it didn't make an appearance. Salt did not make an appearance in Simonton's pancakes. The point being here is that we view this phenomena in terms of the modern culture, which is the point that things like this may have happened hundreds of years ago, where ingredients, cakes, or cookies are handed to earthlings by their visitors here we see it in science fiction terms but again we're looking at the phenomenon in terms of our present culture yeah and the intriguing thing um, is that it always seems to be just a little outside of our grasp Um, the fairies of course were supposed to have these magnificent feats of magic and these magical abilities and that explained how they were able to vanish that explained how they were able to fly around that explained all of the things that were then unexplained 
Um, and then in our modern culture, we see these magnificent space beings, you know, coming from usually utopian societies. I know there are some exceptions to that um, in their fantastic vehicles, the very thing that we are reaching for. Um, interestingly enough, too, there's a sliver of time, especially at the turn of the last century, um, where we saw this motif kind of more of the airship and the mystery inventors. Um, there's a lot of yellow journalism about that at the time, but there did seem to be some genuine reports where people were claiming to see these miraculous airships. Um, and of course, that was right before flight as we understand it. So it really seems as though there's some mechanism at play here, which is able to kind of show us something that we can grasp, but we can't quite reach. Um, that's how it appears to me, at least. In other words, the term is one step beyond. <laughs> On the other hand, you have to look back at the 1890s and maybe... In some cases, there were lone inventors who were inventing something which was only slightly advanced from our technology, and they were testing it. So how could you know at this point? Yeah, sifting through that, I mean, it is, it's such a mix of there's a potential for that. There's a potential for, of course, um, journalistic hoaxes. Um, and then there's, you know, pretty much the same sort of thing that we see today that was simply explained away as the airship. You know, people talking about these um, strange lights that were moving at high rates of speed and making 90 degree turns. You know, so, I mean, that's exactly what we see today with the UFO phenomenon. It's just that at that time, um, they just explained it as the airship, regardless of how it looked, just as we today will explain things as, you know, whatever we believe UFOs are. I mean, the flying saucer concept obviously has been modernized quite a bit in recent years, but I don't feel like we've really moved much past that. I do see a tendency, though, people are um, looking into the more interdimensional concept. And I just have to wonder if we try and cement that narrative, you know, I don't know. I, I think the truth is something a lot more vague than that. I should also point out that uh, you're referring to the uh, turn of the century uh, uh, airship sightings. There were also a couple of cases uh, where people would run across uh, these landed craft and were asked to uh, bring water. Yes. For the occupants. So, uh, again, there's that, uh, you know, similar connections to uh, uh, Symington and, and other more modern UFO cases. The really interesting thing, too, is that in some of these places where effectively, you know, an airship flap instead of a UFO flap was occurring, you also had sightings of wild men. Um, of course, you know, pretty much Bigfoot encounters or even mystery panthers or strange dog-like creatures popping up at the same time. So really, just an intriguing, intriguing thing. Yeah, that's uh, that's one of the aspects of uh, the whole phenomena that that fascinates me is, and especially you look at say like Stan Gordon's uh, mm -hmm. investigations in Pennsylvania and the uh, connection with uh, UFO sightings and uh, uh, other cryptid creatures, not just Bigfoot, but just a, a whole pantheon of, of bizarre things. Oh yeah, I mean the interesting thing is that whenever there is um, a flap of any activity, too. It doesn't really stay in its bounds. Um, I've noticed even with UFO flaps, it's not like it's ever just, you know, I mean, sometimes there's many, many sightings of one thing, but very often there'll be a sighting of something that looks like a conventional flying saucer. There'll be sightings of things in the sky. There'll be sightings of, um, you know, yes, cryptids. Um, it all kind of just bleeds one into the other. You know, it doesn't really stay in its conventional categories. And that is just simply phenomenal. Now, when uh, when people ask you, you know, and 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 think that you know maybe that because uh, I know that you used to be uh, um, a member of MUFON. Mm, yes. 
did did you did you get any grief because you were also interested in uh, cryptozoology? You know, because a lot of people who are uh, uh, UFO investigators, I mean, that's that's it. There's no, you know, there's there's a clear uh, uh, mark. There's UFOs, and then there's that that crazy stuff that we're going to ignore. Let's not ignore these announcements. More to come with Zelia and Jean and Tim. You're in the Paracast. Hey, listeners, I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. With After the Paracast, you never know what's going to happen next. After the Paracast features color commentary, special interviews, and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, the Paracast dot plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out the Paracast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus. If you're like most Americans, you're pretty much in disbelief with what's going on in the world. As we all know, global problems are having local consequences. Too many of them. And if the peanut butter really hits the fan, are you ready? Grocery store supply chains are only as strong as their weakest link. Don't wait for them to break. Now's the time to secure emergency food for everyone in your family. My Patriot Supply is America's largest preparedness company. Our specially packaged and delicious food stays fresh for up to 25 years in storage. It'll be there when you need it. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and pick up several emergency food kits. There are a dozen different sizes that average over 2,000 calories per day. Our food kits will ship quickly and discreetly to your door. Having food storage in your home beats government food lines hands down. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com today and prepare for what's coming. MyPatriotSupply.com Are you afraid to go to the mailbox because of letter after letter from the IRS? Are they stacking on more and more penalties and interest? By now, you know the problem won't go away on its own. Don't let the IRS chase you to your grave with penalties and interest and liens and levies. You need real help now. I'm Dan Pilla. I wrote the book on tax debt settlement, and I helped thousands of people solve tax problems they thought couldn't be solved. I can help you too. Call 800-34-NO-TAX or go to my website, danpilla.com. That's danpilla.com. danpilla.com. Jake was in big trouble with the IRS. He owed how much? $92,000. Ouch. And the IRS left no room for Jake to breathe. They put a lien on my house, took all the money out of my bank account, took money out of my paychecks. So it was a nightmare. He needed help fast. I figured that all these companies were the same until I called federal tax management. You could just tell they knew what they were talking about. Right then and there, I felt like I had some hope. Stop the liens, levies, and garnishments fast and qualify for one of several special IRS programs that could reduce or even eliminate your tax debt. So, how did it go for Jake? They did 
what they said they would do. They came through for me. I ended up saving an unbelievable amount. I was so jazzed. I was extremely happy. If you owe more than $10,000 in back taxes, take Jake's advice. Give federal tax management a phone call. If they help me, they can help anybody. Call the federal tax management hotline now. 800-503-8625. 800-503-8625. Are you curious about what might be missing from your diet and supplement choices? Take a free health assessment to identify your possible nutrient deficiencies. As a certified holistic health coach, I will help you assess and prioritize a supplement program based on Dr. Wallach's recommendations. Call Linda at 833-VITAL90. That number to call is 833-848-2590. That's 833-VITAL90. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. One of the 27 and a half voices that Tim Swartz specializes in, when he does the quarter voice, that's between the half and the full, you know, with a three-quarter voice. Oh. <laughs> you asked a question of Zelia. Would you continue with that? Or Zelia, would you have a response? Sure thing. So I actually, I feel very lucky because my dealings have been overwhelmingly positive in the paranormal field. Regarding specifically MUFON, um, you know, when I joined on, I was really, I was very invested in um, the concept of conventional ufology. And so that's why I decided to become a field investigator and from there, assistant state director and then state director for a very short time. And eventually, you know, I never had any specific, like, you know, complaints against my particular brand of research, um, it was kind of more just a matter of me realizing that if I wanted to devote more time and energy to that, I'd probably have to do that on my own time. So that's, that is why I ultimately decided to leave MUFON was just because, you know, I did want to look into this entire field as possibly inter- interrelated to, you know, everything else, because there do seem to be patterns that exist between these different types of phenomena. So, and yeah, for the most part, I have had a few people, you know, randomly, obviously very invested in a particular theory, people who think they have the answer, quote unquote, who don't seem to be too pleased with what I have to say, but it has been overwhelmingly positive. So I feel really fortunate for that. Did you encounter any of the criticisms that have been leveled against MUFON? Boy, um, it was an interesting time there. I will say that much. Um, and before I continue with that thought, I will say that I do think a lot of the field investigators, most of the people I dealt with, really, you know, are in it for the right reason. They want to figure out what's going on. Um, so, you know, the people I dealt with personally were, for the most part, again, very positive. I will say that it was kind of a chaotic time that I was affiliated with them. And again, I kind of get the the years all bleed one into the other. Um, but there was definitely a lot of shifting going on in you know the upper kind of red tape bureaucracy of it. A lot of projects that were promised that never really happened. So it was interesting. I can see how you know people get a little paranoid, um, specifically in the field of ufology, just how things are dealt with. I don't think there was any malevolence there at that time, but you know. When stuff just kind of gets shifted around and there's no real reason as to why, 
it's just funny to me when you have a field that is kind of, you know, rather whether rightly or wrongly, um, you know, affiliated with the very Fox Mulder type paranoia and, you know, people who kind of like think in those terms. I find it interesting that you wouldn't just catalog be like, well, this is why this is happening. And this is why so and so left. And this is why this is no longer a thing. You know, it was all just very like, oh, what now? Well, we have a situation here where a long time international director was fired because he got into a legal problem that we shan't mention and then yes. his predecessor replaced him but there was also a situation here where a state director back east was putting mm. posts on facebook that were racially toned in other words the guy was writing racist creeds racist yeah. stuff and there was a big question about how they dealt with that person and so there's this personnel issue where things like that should not impact what a UFO group does. But if you have an individual of prominence with the organization doing stuff that isn't very nice, then exactly. it reflects on the organization. And so yeah, that, the other question, of course, is that there have been issues where MUFON has run into issues, run into problems. Like, for example, in the early 2000s, they made a deal with... Robert Bigelow, mm-hmm. who we didn't know at the time, was sitting on $22 million cash he got from the Pentagon's UFO program. It went to him. And he contacted MUFON about them doing investigations. And then there was some kind of dispute over that, that they downplay, at least Dr. Kelleher, who was one of the people involved with Bigelow's organization, downplays. But James Carrion, who was head of MUFON at the time, said that basically Bigelow wanted to take the stuff and keep it for himself, basically buy the sightings for himself and not let MUFON publicize them. So this is really things before your time, most likely. The first set of issues was um, after my time. And I know when I saw, because all of that news that you mentioned was, uh, that was like 2020, 2021, um, if I'm not mistaken. So that was well after my time. And I was, I was very shocked and surprised by that. Well, it's interesting here. The guy who took over, McDonald, took over as the head of MUFON, which is the position he occupied earlier, he made a living by running these mile-high flights where people go up in airplanes and have fun. And, of course, there's nothing wrong with that. They're adults. They have a right to do what they want. But after the kind of scandal they had, you think, couldn't they have picked somebody else? (laughs) I mean, really. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You couldn't write this stuff, honestly. You, You couldn't make it up. No, no, you really couldn't. But no, yeah, I did. I um, heard of the whole, the Bigelow thing that you mentioned as well. And I thought that was intriguing and a little weird. Um, And I know that by the time I left, another reason that I left was because there was a lot of confusion with how cases were being distributed and who was able to handle them. And, you know, I don't have like the hard and fast info on that. So I'm not going to talk too deeply about it. But I know that it was, it was enough to seem weird to me. Um, and so that was definitely a contributing factor into how why I decided to depart as well. You know, there was an article in the Washington Post about MUFON. And this came out after the news of the Pentagon investigations. And they focus on this one lead investigator who basically screwed up his life completely because of UFOs. So therefore, he's working like a night watchman or janitor or something at a school. He was getting these low-end jobs. His marriage was ruined because of his UFO interests. 
And it may it look like, well, the people who are really involved and invested in UFOs are just wacky fringe people who can't exist in normal society. And basically, by having that guy with that background in a high position that should be a position of respect reflected on the organization. Oh, they just attract weirdos. Yeah, I I know that's part of the that's part of the biggest thing that I think anyone really interested in the paranormal faces is that, you know, people really do just, you know, once you mention that again, some people totally are cool with it. Some people, a lot of people that I've met have had an experience or two and so they want to talk about it. But every now and again, it's like, you'll just mention it. And they do, they think they wait for you to pull out the tinfoil hat and say that the Venusians are listening to your thoughts. Um, You know, and there's such a stigma too, even against, you know, the terminology of the paranormal. Um, And to that regard, I had an aunt actually um, doesn't believe in any of this stuff. And she so we told her because for a time my sister had to had a commute of like an hour and this was before my sister could drive um she's a professional ballet dancer and so we would see you know because we were driving extensively on this road um we had a few ufo sightings and so I, we mentioned it to my aunt she just poo-pooed the whole thing and then she drove my sister in one night and they had a sighting and when they got back, my mom kind of was, you know, sort of giving her a time about it. And so she was like, well, hey, you know, so what did you see? And my aunt was like, well, it was something in the sky and we don't know what it was. We know what this was. And that's coming up in a moment with Zelia and Jean and Tim. You're in. The podcast. <laughs> Silver has always been nature's very own antibiotic, and only one system allows you to generate an endless supply of natural silver solutions. Silverlungs.com. You'll find no wild claims or pseudoscience, just a lifetime of nano-sized pure silver solutions. The Silver Lungs generator allows you to make your own, so stop paying for silver solutions. The unique lung delivery system targets respiratory infections where other silver solutions simply cannot reach. See the Silver Lungs generator and lung delivery system at Silverlungs.com. That's Silverlungs.com. G'day, I'm Jamel that works with Dr. Joel Wallach and the GCN team with Longevity at TeamG'day.com. By becoming an associate, you provide income for you and your family on your own hours while working from home. So contact me, Jamel, by filling in the contact box at TeamG'day.com and I will get back to you personally and provide all the support you need to get started and build your Longevity business. TeamG'day.com. TeamG'day.com. USA Radio News with Wendy King. A massive blizzard is hitting the Northeast, causing power outages in the region and forcing cancellations of thousands of flights. The storm pummeled New York City, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Massachusetts, where snowfall rates of one to two inches per hour are being recorded. Tens of millions of people are under winter weather alerts, stretching from the mid-Atlantic to New England. Wind gusts are reported up to 40 miles per hour, but they're expecting more along the coast. Over 10 million people in the Northeast are under blizzard warnings. 
The National Weather Service is warning that the nor'easter could bring near-record snowfall and blizzard conditions to most of New England. Power outages are widespread, and thousands of flights have been canceled due to the storm. This is USA Radio News. Juliana Michelle Childs, a federal judge for South Carolina since 2010, is now under consideration to fulfill President Joe Biden's campaign pledge of placing the first black woman on the Supreme Court. The White House confirmed that Childs, who House Democratic Whip James Clyburn has championed, was one of Biden's potential picks. Childs is the first publicly confirmed name under consideration to replace Justice Stephen Breyer, who announced he would retire at the end of the court's current term, which runs through June. Joni Mitchell said Friday she would remove her music from Spotify in protest after recent controversy between Neil Young and the music streaming giant over podcaster Joe Rogan's COVID-19 misinformation. Mitchell released a message saying, I stand with Neil Young. She's the first major artist to follow Young in leaving Spotify. You're listening to USA Radio News. February is Heart Month. Every year for the month of February, to show our appreciation to Extendivite's faithful customers, we have a sale. If you would like to try Extendivite, now is the time to get a few months ahead and really give Extendivite the time to show you how it works. Most of Extendivite's long-term customers wait for this sale to stock up. People and doctors tell us about the unbelievable improvements that they have experienced in their overall health, not just the heart. Extendivite wants you to experience the power of these herbs. Get a four-month supply for only $115 for either the capsules or tincture. Please take advantage of this once-per-year sale and get healthy for life. To order, call 1-877-928-8822 or visit heartdrop.com or find us on Amazon. Extend your life with Extendivite. This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast. So, so Zelia Edgar, you were telling us about your aunt, and she saw something strange with your sister, and she would not use the term UFO. Is that correct? Not at all. I mean, and it's just one of those things where it's like, okay, to you, I know that, you know, it's been mixed up a lot in the public eye, um, but to say UFO does not mean I saw a little green man flying a flying saucer. It just means that you saw an object that was unidentified that happened to be in the sky. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion on, you know, whether it should be changed to UAP or whatever. And, you know, I do think that unidentified aerial phenomena probably is a better term because so many of these things are so much more vague than simply an object. But regardless, you know, even that admission, the terminology was just too much for her. So, and you do, you see that stigma a lot that, you know, anyone interested in this field is just some total wacko nut job. Well, you know, it all started out in the early days. These were flying saucers because of a mis- the identification of the Kenneth Arnold sighting, which is more ellipsoid. Mm-hmm. But they moved like saucers skipping across water. And therefore, a reporter said, flying saucer. So yep. in the early 50s, Project Blue Book, the fellow who was head of it, Captain Ruppelt, said UFO, make them look respectable, unidentified flying objects. We're not calling them spaceships. We're not saying what they are. It's just that we don't know. And that sounded fair until UFO became 
a treacherous term because of its overuse by lots of fringe people, which is why we have UAP today. Now, I should point out this is something maybe you hadn't heard of. In the early days, from the 50s on for a few decades, there was an organization called APRO mm, yep. by Carl and James Lorenzen, and yep. they call them UAOs, Unidentified Aerial Objects, again to escape the UFO and flying saucer designations, or just to look different, but it wasn't adopted by anybody else. I should point out that MUFON was basically a spinoff of presumably disgruntled APRO members. That's how it started. Yeah, I think I did hear about that. And yeah, the the old um, APRO bulletin, man, they have... I found um, a website online that has a lot of those available, and they had just such fantastic encounters because the Lorenzans really seem to be the first ones to um, start discussing the concept of the occupants. Um, And again, whether that's really a correct term or not, who's to say? Um, But the beings associated with, you know, these objects, so. I had some encounters with the Lorenzans. He was a really nice guy. She could be crusty. Oh, (laughs) I don't want to say more. I didn't like her. I didn't like her because she didn't like me. It worked out that way. Ah, There we go. That is a fan. That's going to use that the next time I find someone that uh, is a bit disagreeable. They're just crusty. Right. Well, it was, you know, she had this kind of attitude about me because we had an issue 10 years earlier. When I mm. put something in a UFO magazine, she felt she hadn't gotten the proper credit. And she asked me to send her a hundred dollars in 1965 dollars, which is like, you know, seven, eight hundred dollars today. No. Oh, geez. I'm just a kid going to school and you're asking yeah. me for a hundred dollars. And as I said, once again, consider what that is in today's dollars. And I'll give you the figure in a moment. But that was very, very unfortunate. And by the way, APRO's files apparently were left in someone's garage and they won't let outside researchers look at it. Because forgetting the attitude of the management, they had some great work there. Oh, yeah. Man, that's that's unfortunate, though. Just imagine having that wealth of information and being like, well, no one's getting in here except the mice. <laughs> oh, yeah, and that's probably what will happen, too, is that yeah. uh, they'll just deteriorate over the years. One of my favorite quotes just thinking about all of the you know kind of different conflicting personalities and stuff um keel when he said the saucer hunters and their drama i know that stuck with me for years (laughs) sometimes he called you foology (laughs) oh by the way i looked up a hundred dollars in 1965 is worth 885 dollars today 2022 So, therefore, she was asking me for the equivalent of $885. Oh, wow. That's, Think about that. That is, that's no good. And she Sorry. remembered you 10 years later. That's right. I was at a UFO convention in 1975. And I had some disputes with Richard Hall, who was in the 60s, the office manager at NICAP, Major Keogh's organization. And we looked at each other. We shook hands. We had a pleasant conversation. I'm only sad that when the Paracast debuted, we didn't get a chance to interview Richard Hall before he died. Ditto with John Keel. We actually almost got Keel. My uh, former co-host got Keel's number from Tim Beckley. 
So he calls up Keel, and Keel says, "Who gave you that number?" and hangs up on him. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> I should have made the call because I knew Keel and had a friendly association with him. But unfortunately, no we didn't think of that. Yeah. Oh man! And again, when I first so when I re, like rediscovered Keel, it was when I was late teens um and i remember i was reading first i read mothman prophecies and then i got to operation trojan horse and then the eighth tower and at that time i was reading and i was like man he sounds just done with this field like you know he's writing these books and meanwhile he's just like this is just all just stressful and terrible and don't get involved and there i was this young kid absolutely getting involved (laughs) so i did not heed his warning you're a rare breed because I think most younger people don't get involved in UFOs in a traditional way, which you did. You, of course, you have a YouTube channel, which is common nowadays, but you wrote a book. And yeah. you've got to think that's very different. I thought before I saw your picture and everything, okay, it's a normal person in her 40s or 50s or something. And looking at your age, do you think that maybe you're a throwback a little bit in your attitude? I hope so. Um, For some reason, I just gravitate towards, I kind of look at it as like the golden age of, you know, not just ufology, but also just all of this kind of weird anomalous stuff of like the late 60s and the 70s. Um, You know, I just, I gravitate towards a lot of those cases. It seems as though there was just a real stroke of weirdness that existed at that time. So I hope so. I hope I'm kind of a throwback. I term my book as kind of eclectic and retro. So I hope that comes through. Do you listen to Beatles music? Not the Beatles, but I do listen to a lot of other 70s music, uh, like David Bowie, Black Sabbath, that sort of thing. Ah, okay. So it's one step beyond the Beatles. Because a lot of that stuff started with the Beatles, like Helter Skelter by the Beatles, written primarily by Paul McCartney, because he wanted to make the loudest recording he could make. And that influenced heavy metal very much. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but no, that whole, that era to me is just, you know, sometimes I wonder if I was born at the wrong time, but then I'm like, eh, whatever, here I am. Let's get that time machine go back. I know, right? I always, my thing is, if I had a time machine, there's two times that I would definitely go to, and one is the 90s, so I could actually watch the X-Files week by week, um, because I consider myself an X-Files fan from before I was born, because my mom actually watched it while she was pregnant with me. And then, of course, to the 70s, just to be there, you know, when all of these weird cases were coming about. But of course, then too, I'd have to go back to the 60s for the entire Point Pleasant affair. And then I'd probably just end up time traveling for my entire life. So who knows? It's probably a good thing I don't have a time machine. Now, 1973 was a real interesting year. I was working as news director of a radio station just outside of Philadelphia. And I was starting to read about UFO sightings again. And then, of course... October 11th, 1973, you know what I'm talking about. I should point out that you refer, of course, to Calvin Parker at age 18. We've had him on the Paracast a couple of times. And I ask our listeners to check our archives and listen to him remembering this so many years later. Let's talk about the Pascagoula abduction because you're framing it in a way that relates to Keel. Absolutely. That is, that was one of the first, like, you know, classic UFO encounters that I definitely looked at in kind of a more Keelian light. Um, And I mean, it is, it's one of the most intriguing just because of how absolutely bizarre it is. And of course, um, it was, 
uh, Hickson and Parker, um, they were co-workers and also friends, fishing off of a pier on the Pascagoula River. Let's do our break. We'll talk about the Pascagoula case coming up with Zelia and Gene and Tim. You're in the Paracast. <laughs> Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code. They're offering substantial hosting discounts on shared hosting, business hosting, VPS hosting, reseller hosting, and even dedicated servers. Namecheap is preferred by millions. It's backed by a money-back guarantee. Use the coupon code LEGENDARY to cash in on the special deal at Namecheap.com, Namecheap.com. First game attack of the Rockoids, and it was a critically acclaimed success. And now there is the coming of the Protectors. A former military intelligence man is contacted by a space woman in a dream. A dream that turns out to be a nightmare, because evil forces on our distant planet are planning to conquer the Earth. This is gripping science fiction of the classic kind. Attack of the Rockoids and the coming of the Protectors. Find out more at Rockoids.com. That's Rockoids, R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S, dot com. If you're concerned about the power grid and want to generate your own supply of off-grid electricity, this will be the most important message you'll hear this year. Here's why. We now have a small number of solar generators back in stock. These emergency backup systems provide life-saving backup power when you need it most. And unlike gas generators, solar generators run quietly, emit no dangerous fumes, and produce an endless supply of free electricity from the sun. Whether it's wildfires, dangerous weather, power grid issues, or just getting off the grid, you'll never have to suffer through painful power outages again. Even better, all this week, radio listeners get over $700 in free off-the-grid bonuses, too. Go to MySolarBackup.com to learn more and check availability. That's MySolarBackup.com. Look for the free report, Crisis Cooling, how to make absolutely sure your meat, milk, and medicines stay safe and cool in any power outage. Yours free at MySolarBackup.com. Hi, Peter Vaccaro for ParanormalDate.com. Are you looking for love in all the wrong places? Now you have a chance to change that by signing up for free at ParanormalDate.com. This incredible dating site puts people of like minds together. People who are interested in the strange, the unusual, mysteries, ghosts, UFOs, and the afterlife, and so much more. ParanormalDate.com was developed for you. People seeking a viable alternative to the other dating services. You can join for free by going to ParanormalDate.com. And if you decide you like it and want to connect with people, use the code GEORGE for a substantial discount. Mark Rawlings, president of ParanormalDate.com, says so many people hunger to share their experiences about the paranormal, the unexplainable, or the afterlife, and so much more. And this is the source for them to meet and share that common interest. So sign up for free at ParanormalDate.com. ParanormalDate.com. And use the code GEORGE if you decide to connect with someone you like. We've entered a time where sky truly is the limit and opportunity awaits. The Internet has become a platform of everyone's worldwide communications. Billionaires building businesses on platforms that didn't even exist a generation ago. But in the sea of noise, how can the voice of your business be heard? The secret is over 100 years old. Radio. 228% more effective than TV. 
That's 228% more effective than television. Brick and mortar and cyber businesses alike have found radio to be the most effective for building a brand and delivering customers. Learn the secrets of radio advertising by calling 877-996-4327 or email advertise at GCNlive.com. That's advertise at GCNlive.com. This is Jacques Vallée, and you're listening to the podcast, The Gold Standard of Paranormal Radio. Ah, he's channeling Kermit the Frog. My sister will love you for that. She is obsessed with the Muppets, so thank you. (laughs) So is my wife. (laughs) Um, Yes, the Pascagoula abduction. Um, It's a fantastic case because I do feel like there are so many cases that when you look at them from one angle, they're considered like just the classic. And this is one of the classics of ufology. But then if you look at them in kind of more high strangeness light, you do see how the patterns exist well beyond that. So you have these two men, coworkers and friends, and they're fishing off of Pier in Pascagoula. When they saw this light, this bluish light kind of flickering across the water, and suddenly it morphed into this large football-shaped object. This thing, you know, stopped quite like over this old like auto-wrecking type junkyard, which is a fact I'll have to get to in a second here. Um, A door opened to the side of it and these three beings came out of the object. And these things are incredibly bizarre, even in the annals of many bizarre, you know, creatures. They were described as these grayish, wrinkly things with not really any sort of um, like face as we would understand it. They appeared to have a nose, but only a slit um, for the eyes and mouth. But they also had a weird protuberance that looked exactly like the nose on either side of the head. And in addition to that, they had these large crab-like claws. So they floated down towards the two men on the pier who apparently were kind of struck senseless and proceeded to take them into the craft. Now, the interesting thing here is that the older gentleman, Charles Hickson, remembered his encounter. He claimed that there was this large eye that kind of moved over him in what he believed was some sort of almost medical type examination. Whereas Parker didn't, you know, according to most accounts, didn't really recall what had happened during that time until much later. Um, So after this was over, they were all floated back to the pier and the craft departed. Now, the amazing thing about this And something that's occurred to me very often when you look at these great close contact encounters is that oftentimes it seems as though the first occurrence is simply a light or a noise. Um, And the intriguing thing with that is that, you know, you'd think, okay, well, what's the importance of this? Maybe the, you know, the lights are on the craft. That's the first thing they notice. But it's even across the board with some cryptid encounters where people will say that the first thing they noticed was the glowing eyes of the being. Um, So it really seems as though throughout these encounters, light is kind of this, it almost kind of ushers in the encounter. Now, just to tell our listeners before you go on with this, we had Calvin Parker on the Paracast September 2nd, 2018. This, of course, is regard his book, Pascagoula, The Closest Encounter, My Story, from Flying Disc Press. We then had him on for a return visit, October 6th, 2019. Since then... Calvin's been in ill health. I hope he's a lot better. I haven't heard much from him lately. But Zelia, go on with the story. Well, the intriguing thing, too, is that 
Parker then was able to recollect, you know, further events, which had almost, I kind of want to say almost like religious undertones to them, which a lot of these encounter, these, um, you know, supposed alien abduction type encounters do. Intriguingly enough, though, and this is what I love about so many of these events is it's like as soon as you pin down one aspect of them and say, okay, well, maybe something truly did happen. You know, these two men saw the same thing. They corroborated each other's story. You know, they had an experience, but maybe it occurred just on like, you know, a non-physical level or an immaterial level is the fact that in the area, there were other sightings at the time. Um, Shortly thereafter, there was even a sighting of an unidentified submerged object, which appeared to evade these gentlemen as they were boating in the area um, and also evaded capture by the Coast Guard when they were called in. Um, so there what did seem to be, you know, just kind of a general air of weirdness at that time in Pascagoula. Um, and even later that week, some miles away, a young boy claimed that he had played with some old gray monster in his backyard. So you have these kind of Again, not necessarily identical, but sort of cooperating type events um, going on for something that we could try and easily write off as being purely non-physical. That may be, you know, one of the answers people give to abduction cases in general, that they are not physical encounters, but some kind of experience that is internal to the person who is the experiencer. Yes, and... I don't want to say my problem with that concept, because I think there's a lot of worth to um, a lot of the theories that kind of go hand in hand with that idea, you know, citing that it seems to have religious or spiritual or folkloric overtones. It may pertain to the collective unconscious. I think there's a lot of worth to that line of reasoning. The problem with that is that, you know, we can't totally pin it in the psychological or you know, non-physical department, because oftentimes um, there are physical effects left, or there's also corroborating reports from other witnesses. And that's the intriguing thing to me is so often, it seems as though people really want to make a distinction. They're like, okay, either physically actually happened in a reality we can understand by something that is physical 100% of the time, or it happened in an immaterial, you know, spiritual or psychological sense, and there's no physical reality to it. But the trick is, is that very often these paranormal events kind of seem to exist at a crossroads. They seem to include both sides of that coin. And so I think that trying to capture that edge um, may be integral to trying to finally understand some truths about paranormal phenomena. You know, it always occurs to me when you hear about these abductions, and a lot of them is just one individual, not two people. I'm not thinking in terms of Hickson and Parker and, of course, the Hills. Barney and Betty Hill, but it's a single person. And you wonder if somebody else was there physically at the point in time when this occurred, would they see the same thing or even notice anything was unusual? Exactly. I mean, and that is that is the question, because the amazing thing, there's so many ways I want to go with this. Um, The amazing thing is that, you know, when you are dealing, first of all, with shared encounters, and you try and say, okay, well, they were 100% psychological. Oftentimes you have people describing either the same thing or something very similar. So if it is a hallucination, then the question has to be, how is the hallucination shared? Um, On the flip side, you also have accounts where people are all observing the same thing that they can objectively see in reality, but they're seeing different things about it. There was this great encounter from the UK where these three boys were actually out and they were interested in UFOs. And so they had an unofficial kind of UFO hunting group, um, which, of course, I'm sure that sends off a lot of red flags for any skeptics out there. Um, But just because you're interested in it doesn't mean that it can't happen to you. They were near this disused canal when they saw these strange kind of mist rise up out of it. 
And so they started to get a little afraid, so they decided to go home. Well, the mist followed them, and it kept following them. And then suddenly, there were lights in the mist. Now, at a certain point, they were just deciding not to look at it. They were just going to try and rush home as fast as possible. Well, finally, they turned around when they were within sight of the house. And two of the boys claimed that they saw an almost Bigfoot-like creature that did not have any legs. It just kind of trailed off almost like a cartoon ghost. And it was holding in clawed hands these two lights. So, of course, if they had been rushing home, they then absolutely just full tilt ran for the house. While the third boy kind of laughed at them and was like, what are you doing? He apparently still just saw the mist and the lights. And so you have these encounters. Um, the Cusack Devils is another great example where um, two children saw this big luminous sphere and these four imp-like beings in front of it. And there were different details between the two encounters, but for the most part, they corroborated. You know, so there is that question there of how much of this is actually like, you know, some physical material objective thing and how much of it is maybe only perceptible to certain people. And again, why only certain people and not others? That's one of the great questions. Now, there's a case, uh, I think it took place in uh, uh, South America, where uh, several people, uh, uh, what, one of the witnesses said that a UFO landed and that uh, he was abducted, while uh, other people there said that it was just a bus that came by and that they were watching their friend just kind of like roll around uh, on, the, on the ground. Uh, the odd thing is, is that the... The ones who saw just a bus said that it came by uh, without any sound and that it had uh, strange lights on it. But they definitely identified it as a bus, while the other witness said it was a UFO that came down and he was you know, uh, drug inside the craft and then uh, kicked out afterwards. Oh, that is intriguing. I have not heard that one before. I'll, have to, I'll, I'll see if I can uh, locate that. And I'll, I'll send it to you. Zia. You know, another interesting thing about abduction cases, and you can download these episodes from theparacast.com, but back in 2013, we had an episode of the Paracast, and it was broadcast on June 2nd, featuring Kathleen Martin and Denise Stoner. Now, Denise is a psychic, and we can dismiss that, but she was talking about her abduction encounters, and I'll explain most of it possibly in the next segment. But very briefly... During the course of a UFO abduction, she meets somebody from another part of the country and she, I guess, exchanges information so one can contact the other after this encounter is done. Very important. One can contact the other, two people in different locations. And that's the cliffhanger, folks. We'll continue. We have Zelia Edgar. We have Tim Schwartz and Gene Steinberg. You're in the Paracast. You are listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. Attack of the Rockoids has been well received by critics and readers alike. It's a thrill a minute story you'll never forget. A former U.S. military intelligence officer is haunted by intense dreams about a beautiful woman pleading for his help after a terrible battle in outer space. But the dreams turn out to be true and thrust him into a telepathic love affair with a woman whose faraway planet is intent on destroying the Earth. And now the gripping tale continues in The Coming of the Protectors. 
It's the second book of the Rockoids trilogy, a galaxy-spanning adventure that pits our hapless heroes against powerful, fanatical enemies that threaten the lives of freedom-loving beings everywhere. Attack of the Rockoids and The Coming of the Protectors, classic science fiction at its best, available now. For more details, visit rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Now with orders to stay at home, public health concerns, the reality of illness due to pathogens and viruses, your health is at an all-time high risk. That's why it's critical to take a proactive approach to boost your immune system. You can with new nano-colloidal silver from AmeriCare. Our patented process with tiny silver particles, one one-hundredth the size of a red blood cell, allows for maximum body absorption. AmeriCare's nano-colloidal silver effectively disinfects your body internally, attacking pathogens and viruses while supercharging your immune system. Colloidal silver is antibacterial and antiviral. Simply put, it prohibits bacterial respiration, suffocating viral cells, preventing the virus from replicating. And now, due to public health concern, AmeriCare is authorized to offer our lowest and best price ever, around a dollar a day. But supplies are limited. Purchase nano-colloidal silver now at ImmuneSupportNow.com. That's ImmuneSupportNow.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Supplies are limited. Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. Now, listeners have heard about this before. So, Denise meets this person aboard a UFO. Later on, they get in contact with one another and share the same abduction experience from different parts of the country, people who didn't know one another. Where do you take that, Tim? I would think if I had been involved in a situation like that, I'd be able to uh, uh, remember the case, but then the person that I, w- I would contact would have no recollection at all and just you know, be like, okay, who's this, who's this weirdo? <laughs> How did they get their, How did they get my number? <laughs> Even being interested in this field, I'm wondering, you know, if someone showed up at my doorstep one day and was like, hey, don't you remember me from inside the saucer? I don't know what I'd say. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's an intriguing concept, though, because uh, there there was uh, um, Ari, uh, uh, gosh, a uh, uh, six shooter uh, who has done several books on um, Native American UFO uh, encounters. There was a, a case in one of her books where two children met up on a uh, uh, allegedly on a, on a UFO, and then years later they came across each other uh, in you know in normal circumstances and recognized each other. And I think, if my memory serves me correctly, ended up uh, getting married. And uh, you know they attribute. You know, they're being able to get married because they met up on a UFO. Oh, my gosh. See, and I think that, you know, possibly something that does seem to pop up quite a bit is synchronicity. Um, And, you know, whether that's in especially like, you know, UFO-related incidents or hauntings or ESP-type phenomena, it seems as though certain things just kind of fall into place um, very often with these encounters. 
You know, I'm looking at your book here about the various references you make to your source material. And, you know, I know a few of these people, of course, I've met Heineck and I know Valdi and John Keel and everything. And Jerome Clark is somebody I've known 50, 60 years. But you mentioned some real pioneers of UFO research, Ted Blosher and Isabel Davis. They worked with an organization called CSI of New York. And that's not the CSI New York TV show about crime scene investigators. That was Civilian Saucer Intelligence of New York and was one of the most respected organizations in the country. This is like the 50s and 60s. Interesting you came upon that material. Oh, yeah. Well, their coverage of the Kelly Hopkinsville affair, it was amazing to, you know, especially for me, because, you know, that case has been reprinted in so many different places with so many different narratives and so many different extra little tidbits and things like that. But to hear the response of the witnesses and how life was for them after everything that happened, that's one of the most interesting aspects of any encounter for me is to see how the witnesses really went about dealing with it. Um, And so to hear that, you know, the entire family, the associated with the Kelly Hopkinsville event, they just were tired of it. You know, and you get that a lot with these high profile cases when people are consistently bothered by reporters and, yes, investigators and handling their strange encounter with varying degrees of seriousness and varying degrees of belief. You know, I can imagine that must be very trying at the end of the day. Well, I can assume that maybe a small number of people really seek the fame and the fortune or hope for it. But those of us who have been following this for more than a few decades can tell you you don't make money from it. There are a few books that do. But most of us, if we can make a living at all, you know, if we're not like Brad Steiger was, the late Brad Steiger, or now mm. Nick Redfern, where he writes 26 books every hour, yeah. it doesn't work that way. Yeah. I mean, and especially, too, I feel like so often for witnesses, you know, when they have an event as prominent as, like, yes, the Pascagoula abduction or even the Cisco Grove encounter is another great example, or Kelly Hopkinsville, so many of these, where something so bizarre happens to them. You know, they have to deal with that personally. They have to reframe how they look at the world so they can include what has occurred, which in many cases, you know, they end up believing their own narrative about it. And then in addition to that, they have to deal with the public eye. And so, you know, it really is that witness response is definitely, it's intriguing as well. Because also, you know, the thing is, is that, and at the end of the day, this is what I always come back to, you know, not that I'm constantly thinking of the skeptics, like, you know, with a capital S, but it is, it's one of those things that I think of from time to time, just, you know, how can you not see the importance of this field? Because at the end of the day, you know, if none of this stuff is actually occurring, which is definitely not my conviction, I do believe that there is a huge, huge swath of anomaly that is present in our culture and has always been present in, you know, humanity. You know, at the end of the day, if none of that stuff is actually happening, the question remains, why do we believe it's happening? Why do people consistently believe that these things are occurring? And I can't imagine not wanting to figure that out at the very least. Your book has just, you know, it's... it's a fantastic book, uh, I should say, by the way, uh, Zelia. Uh, Thank you. Really enjoyed it. And it, there are a lot of uh, um, chapters that are, you know, familiar cases, and then there are uh, a number that, uh, you know, aren't so familiar. How did you go about uh, 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 picking the stories uh, for this this book? Because I mean, you know, I mean, there's, as you well know, there's there's a billion, billions, and billions out there. How did you choose the specific ones? 
it is really difficult to choose. I'll be honest with that, just because it's true. There are so many totally just fantastic cases out there to cover. And so at the end of the day, it really is kind of about what, you know, almost like choosing what to leave out um, in a manner of speaking, just because, I mean, seriously, you could spend lifetimes sifting through all the encounters that have occurred. For me, you know, I definitely do gravitate towards the weird. So if a case is high strangeness, if it has, um, you know, patterns to other cases um, that I can kind of draw between, you know, that definitely stands out to me. Um, Also, too, I mean, again, I've been doing this for so long. So like, I have a pretty, like, decent knowledge of, you know, um, a lot of the more like classic cases. And just, you know, I read constantly about all of these different phenomena. So it really kind of happens organically. I'll run across like a mention of a case, um, such as the Rochdale cre- creature. I saw just a short little version of that. And I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. And then, you know, once that's caught my eye, I try and find as much information as I can about the particular case, you know, because so often, you know, there's so many different you know, like handlings of the case where different evidence is presented, you kind of have to narrow down, okay, what seems to have been what actually occurred, what was possibly, you know, journalistic influence, things like that. So I try and find as much material as I can on every particular case, and then sift down to the actual events. And then from there, you know, my personal favorite part is really taking kind of a broader look at it and theorizing and trying to see, okay, have I seen anything like this before and making those connections um, to different cases. So it's kind of my process. Now, looking at your book, you have a lot of references. And obviously, when something is published in a number of books and magazine articles, there are going to be differences. So how did you hone in on a consistent account of what might have happened? What I typically do, because, and yeah, it's true, especially with this material, because, you know, specifically like newspapers will often, there'll be misprints, there'll be, you know, people get the dates wrong, things like that. So what I tend to do, and actually a great example of this um, would be the Cusack encounter. You try, like for me, again, I try and find as many different reprints of the case as I can. And then when you start to see, okay, the same three things are mentioned in every single reprint that's you know likely exactly what happened and then suddenly you start seeing extra details so for me it's a matter of sifting out where did these details come from did they come from actual investigators on the scene did they come from you know the actual witness talking to someone or did it just come from nowhere and in the case of Cusack there's this adorable but unfortunately false um, statement that when um, the boy saw these strange imps he actually thought they were children and said, do you want to come play with us? And unfortunately, that was just invented by one of the newspapers of the day, which is a bummer because I know that's such a, I mean, that's just a hilariously cute and also a little freaky um, statement to include there with this kid seeing these strange imp-like beings and asking them to play. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, that was a journalistic invention. So for me, it's just a matter of sifting through and seeing what actually came from investigators or Um, people interviewing the witnesses or anything like that. And then that is the narrative. Zelia and Jean and Tim, you're in the Paracast. Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code. They're offering substantial hosting discounts on shared hosting, business hosting, VPS hosting, reseller hosting, and even dedicated servers. Namecheap is preferred by millions. It's backed by a money-back guarantee. 
Use the coupon code LEGENDARY to cash in on this special deal at Namecheap.com, Namecheap.com. First came Attack of the Rockoids, and it was a critically acclaimed success. And now there is the coming of the Protectors. A former military intelligence man is contacted by a space woman in a dream. A dream that turns out to be a nightmare, because evil forces on our distant planet are planning to conquer the Earth. This is gripping science fiction of the classic kind. Attack of the Rockoids and the coming of the Protectors. Find out more at Rockoids.com. That's Rockoids, R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S, dot com. If you're concerned about the power grid and want to generate your own supply of off-grid electricity, this will be the most important message you'll hear this year. Here's why. We now have a small number of solar generators back in stock. These emergency backup systems provide life-saving backup power when you need it most. And unlike gas generators, solar generators run quietly, emit no dangerous fumes, and produce an endless supply of free electricity from the sun. Whether it's wildfires, dangerous weather, power grid issues, or just getting off the grid, you'll never have to suffer through painful power outages again. Even better, all this week, radio listeners get over $700 in free off-the-grid bonuses, too. Go to MySolarBackup.com to learn more and check availability. That's MySolarBackup.com. Look for the free report, Crisis Cooling, how to make absolutely sure your meat, milk, and medicines stay safe and cool in any power outage. Yours free at MySolarBackup.com. No matter how large or small your digging project may be, no matter how urban or rural, you must always call 811 before any digging project. 811 is our national one-call number, alerting your local utility companies to come out and mark any lines they have near your dig site. So before you do this or this... Make sure you do this. For digging projects big or small, make the call to 811. Brought to you by Common Ground Alliance. Get healthy, not high, with 100% pure CBD, powerful natural pain relief from Veterans Vitality. GCN listeners, have you ever thought about how CBD may help you? I'm sure you have heard about the many benefits of CBD. Well, here's your opportunity to try before you buy. Created by veterans and for everyone who deserves better choices, our CBD is derived from organic hemp, grown in the USA, and third-party tested. Veterans Vitality CBD saves you as much as 25 to 50% over our competition, and a portion of all sales is contributed to veterans nonprofits and events. Many of our customers have experienced improved quality of life, help with anxiety, PTSD, and overall well-being. Our products do not contain THC. They are safe, non-addictive, effective, and 100% legal. GCN listeners, get your free trial bottle of premium CBD by simply paying shipping and handling at GCNFreeCBD.com. That's GCNFreeCBD.com. Again, GCNFreeCBD.com. Offered by Veterans Vitality Premium CBD. No other network provides the level of customer service we do. When it comes to radio advertising, we are your one-stop shop. And no matter how big or small your business is, we can help. Email us at advertise at GCNlive.com and an experienced advertising executive will help you take the first step towards driving more customers to your business or website. Advertise at GCNlive.com. Easy, affordable, effective. 
We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. Zelia Edgar, question here. Okay, so a journalist made up this aspect of this case. How did you come to realize it was made up by the newspaper person? That was, thankfully, in one of the other accounts. And I can't remember if it was one by Valet or one of my other references there, where he actually made a note. Because, of course, too, that case was also a little frustrating for me because the newspaper accounts were in French. So that one actually did come. I think it was Valet who pointed out that that was, unfortunately, a fabrication. But um, there are other ones, too. I am a sucker for old newspapers because so many of these cases, um, especially the walking tree stump case from Pioneer Mountain, Oregon, with Kathy Reeves, which the tree stumps are my favorite aspect of the case, and they seem to be the aspect that no one really wanted to take on who was investigating the case. It was rife with almost poltergeist-like manifestations as well as a UFO flap in the area. But that was one that I was able to find a wealth of information, old newspaper clippings and articles um, about what was going on in the area at the time. And that was just phenomenal. Um, But even with that, too, you just have to double check because I know there was one account that three accounts all had the date correctly. And then one was just like totally off by like a week or so. It's sifting through and trying to see what the consensus is. Chasing those footnotes, as Kevin Randall would refer to it. You know, when you mentioned being interested in old newspapers, now, we don't really have that many newspapers anymore. We have a lot of them just advertising. A lot of them are run by large corporations like Gannett, where they strip out the personality of the newspapers they buy. And by the way, mm-hmm. I used to write for Gannett. I used to write for USA Today. So let me just say that. They strip out all the individuality, and each newspaper becomes a very simplified clone of the other. You don't have the local papers as you did. I remember as a kid going to Times Square, New York City, by subway, and you go to these newspaper stands where they had newspapers from around the country. You want the LA Times? Fine. You want something from upstate New York? Fine. You get to see how the news is covered in different places. Now you don't have that many resources anymore, which is so unfortunate and so sad. That happens. Let me ask you, though, Zelia, obviously you did a lot of research here to find the best, most accurate account of these cases. Were you able to interview any actual witnesses at all? Not for this book, um, though that is definitely something that I'm looking into for the next one. I've never really done like investigations for my channel either, and so that's definitely what I'm looking into moving towards. Because, I mean, that is... It's so fun for me to be able to think of like handling things that are current. Because again, I did focus more on the retro cases for this first one, just because that's how my channel was going. Um, But moving forward, I'm going to see if I can do some live in-person investigations and include those not only on my channel, but my next book. So We look forward to hearing about it. Let's go to another case, September 1952. Now, I first heard of this through Gray Barker, although others have written about it as well. The Flatwoods Monster. What can you tell us about the Flatwoods Monster? Well, that is one of those absolutely fantastic classic cases. And it really, it's intriguing because this is one of those two that, again, when I was a kid, really interested in cryptozoology. And I knew the Flatwoods Monster solely as a cryptid. 
Um, and that's also how I figured Mothman. Really, whatever book I had, I think it was a compendium of cases. And it was really focused on the fact that these are just these strange creatures. Whereas, of course, when you look at it now, um, there is a lot of more like ufological influence on both of these cases. So, of course, the Flatwoods monster. Um, the story begins that a group of kids was playing in Flatwoods, uh, West Virginia, when they saw what they thought was a meteor going overhead. So there was a whole group of kids, I believe it was about seven kids, who decided to go and see if they could find the meteor. Well, along the way, they gathered um, two of the boys' mother, Mrs. May, a National Guardsman who was 18 years old, to go with them. Now, most of the group thought that they would just be finding this crashed meteor, whereas one of them jokingly said, hey, we're going to go look for a flying saucer. Now, as they continued towards the area where this thing appeared to have landed, they became aware of this kind of mist and this pungent odor that got worse as they approached the area. Now, one of the group's dogs actually did accompany them, and in most accounts here, too, um, and this is another fact that I was able to kind of find, get to the bottom of, in most accounts, people say that the dog ran ahead into the mist, and then it ran back out, and it was sick and died later that day. As a matter of fact, in an interview with two of the lead witnesses, the two May brothers, the dog actually lived. So that was, I don't know where that little factoid came from, um, but yeah, that too was just kind of lost in translation, I guess. So anyway, the group pressed on up to the hill, and suddenly they saw what they first took to be a raccoon or possum in a nearby branch because they saw what they took to be eye shine. Now, as soon as Eugene Lemon, the National Guardsman, turned his flashlight towards the area to scare it off, they realized that it was not, in fact, a raccoon. It was actually this bizarre creature or thing. They claimed that, and again, this is another great kind of example of how these things get lost in translation. They claimed that it looked completely robotic, almost like some sort of rocket. Um, it had a very mechanical sort of nature that, you know, it did have the classic like ace of spades shaped, you know, hood um, that you see in most of the portrayals, but actually, you know, it didn't seem to be a living being. However, when the flashlight hit it, it actually turned towards them and it had these flashlight like beams coming from almost like a porthole type thing on its head. Now, at this point, the group panicked. Um, Eugene Lemon apparently even kind of passed out. Mrs. May cleared a fence in one leap and they all ran back into town. The intriguing thing here, one of my favorite aspects of this case, is that so often when you're dealing with paranormal encounters, people really tend to think that we blow things out of proportion, that we see something mundane, and then we, you know, kind of spin it into something that was extra mundane. Whereas oftentimes you'll see that people actually first try and rationalize what's going on. They see this eye shine in the tree and they think to themselves, oh, it's just a raccoon, when suddenly they realize it was something quite a bit different than that. Tim? I think the aspect of uh, the dog surviving, that's uh, uh, a lot of people are relieved to hear that because uh, I, I, I remember the story as, as reported uh, you know, by uh, Gray Barker saying that afterwards the dog got sick, vomited, and then was dead within a few days. The thing we have to worry about here is that Gray Barker, who was really a brilliant writer and can do some incredible things, he also got disenchanted with UFOs early on, and he had a tendency to exaggerate sometimes. Yep. Just a little? Uh, sometimes more than a little. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is a prime example. I feel like, because of course, you know, I knew about Barker mainly from Keel's work. And 
it just, it's so frustrating to see someone who really, you know, I feel like he did, you know, he was interested in a very genuine way in the phenomenon. And then suddenly he was just like, yeah, whatever. I'm going to make up some crazy stuff now. But I think to some extent, his original book, they knew too much about flying saucers, which covered the three men in black that mm-hmm. encountered by Albert K. Bender. I think fundamentally, that was a book they sincerely wrote with as accurate a presentation as possible for a major publisher, and it was a pretty good seller. But later on, Barker became the Barker of legend, which we can mm-hmm. tell all sorts of things about. We've got Zelia and Jean and Tim, you're in. The Paracast. <laughs> for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. Frustrated trying to get business capital? Want to take the slow process and rejection out of the equation? GCNloans.com removes the slow, irritating approval process. Instead, get quick, simple funding. Powered by David Allen Capital, 80% of our pre-qualified clients are approved in days. Pre-qualify at GCNloans.com and get your money this week. It's that easy. GCNloans.com. That's GCNloans.com. What if you could cut your heating bills this winter with your existing wood-burning fireplace and not spend thousands doing it? You can with Great Wall of Fire Fireplace Grates. Our U.S. patented, made-in-America Wall of Fire Grates increase fireplace efficiency, eliminate fireplace smoke problems, and come with a 30-day money-back guarantee. See our grates in action and get free shipping from walloffire.com or call 800-274-7364. Fireplace heat without fireplace smoke. Walloffire.com. USA Radio News with Chris Barnes. Huge snow totals up in the Northeast, especially in New England, but it was in New York where two people lost their lives because of that winter storm. Police on Long Island say that one elderly man apparently was shoveling snow and fell into a pool and died. Earlier that day on Long Island, a snowplow driver found an elderly woman dead inside her car. We are going to take back the White House. That is former President Donald Trump promising to take back the White House as he spoke at a rally in Conroe, Texas. And in 2024, we are going to take back that beautiful, beautiful house that happens to be white, that is so magnificent, and that we all love. A SpaceX Falcon 9 launch that was supposed to happen last night was scrubbed because of bad weather. And this is USA Radio News. Musician Neil Young seems to have started something, as we hear from USA Radio's Wendy King. Joni Mitchell said Friday she would remove her music from Spotify in protest after recent controversy between Neil Young and the music streaming giant over podcaster Joe Rogan's COVID-19 misinformation. Mitchell, whose music garners 3.7 million monthly listeners on the platform, released a message. She's the first major artist to follow Young in leaving Spotify. Spotify announced on Wednesday that it would remove the entire catalog of Neil Young, who has twice been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Niles Lofgren, the guitarist from Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band, has also pulled his music from Spotify. 
A member of the Manson family being denied parole, 74-year-old Robert Beausoleil was turned down Friday. He was convicted of a July 1969 murder. And this is USA Radio News. You don't sit behind a desk every day to earn a living. You're out and about making it happen. And sometimes you get a little bit behind on your paperwork. You know, like bookkeeping and paying your taxes. It's easy to get behind on paying your taxes. It happens to the best of us. And you know what happens next. The big bad IRS comes knocking on your door. And when that happens, you need to call the good old boys at the tax doctor. Let them do what they do best. Deal and negotiate with the IRS so you pay the lowest you can in back taxes that the law allows. We are a 100% U.S.-based company, and we've saved our clients millions over the years in back taxes. If you owe $10,000 or more in back taxes, call my friends right now at the tax doctor and learn more. 800-507-3137. That's 800-507-3137. This is Jerome Clark, author of the UFO Encyclopedia and other books. You're listening to the Paracast. That, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, I want to say we've just presented to you after all these years, that was a Flatwoods monster saying hello in our previous segment. That is the three-quarter imitation. I have to say one thing about Flatwoods that I love, though, is, and you see this quite a bit, it had such an effect on that area that later encounters that had absolutely nothing to do with the actual Flatwoods monster were lopped in to the Braxton County or Flatwoods monster of great fame, um, including, you know, one of my favorite encounters, the Doc Priestley encounter. Um, and there were also the, the Stover encounter, which occurred in roughly the same area near Marlinton, West Virginia in 1960 and 61. And yeah, you know, there were these Bigfoot-like creatures that people were seeing, but because Flatwoods had just such a hold on that area, people referred to them as new versions of the Flatwoods monster in the papers which was really a surprise for me to see. It's amazing that the, uh, the the Flatwoods Monster case is still being talked about today. Of course, 1952 was an interesting year for the entire UFO phenomenon to begin with. I mean, you had earlier in July the whole uh, uh, Washington, D.C. UFO flap, and then you know just a couple of months later, here you had uh, the Flatwoods Monster case. And uh, it seems to me, I remember a book that was uh, written that uh, was saying that after the Washington, D.C incident that uh, Air Force jets were ordered to uh, try to shoot down UFOs. And uh, one author uh, was speculating that the uh, Flatwoods uh, monster case could have been the result of uh, one of these interactions. Was that Ivan Sanderson? Because I know he he discussed um, the possibility that in, oh, I think it was Uninvited Visitors, he discussed the Flatwoods monster at great length. And I know he discussed the possibility, too, that there was, you know, there was some flaw in its ship. And so it went down and the ship like melted away. It was he was an intriguing, intriguing guy as well. Unfortunately, he left us too early. But I met him a few times, went to his farm or house a few times. Oh, and he definitely was an interesting character. Now, one of the theories he made was that. At least some UFOs were living creatures. 
Mm-hmm. It's kind of similar to a gentleman by the name of Trevor James Constable who wrote a book called They Live in the Sky, talking about legends. Oh, yes. He also claimed to be a friend, Sanderson, of M.K. Jessup, who wrote some books in the 50s. And then mm-hmm. in a very strange incident, offed himself in his car yep. in Miami, Florida. Yes. Very strange. And Sanderson, last I remember, thought there was something more to that death than a suicide attempt. Oh, I was not aware of that part. The personalities at that time, too. I mean, the whole thing, you have such interesting material, and then you have such absolutely intriguing people, you know, just these characters dealing with this material. It's just, it is simply phenomenal. Weird stuff, unusual characters, People will never know again. Sadly, many have left us from now. Jim Mosley, for yeah. example, Gray Barker, Tim Beckley, certainly one of the more interesting characters that our co-host Tim Swartz had worked with for a number of years. You go through it. Go through the names. John Keel, Richard mm-hmm. Hall, all these people. Dr. Hynek, of course. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I know. Wish I had a time machine just to be able to, like, meet these people yeah now there's uh there's one story in your your book this is one you talk about having a time machine you'd love to go back to uh, see what actually happened here and that was case 20 the Sandown sam story i don't know if i've ever heard that one before oh that is truly a weird one and you know i will admit i am definitely biased towards stories that have these creatures that are beings or entities or whatever you want to call them that really have no comparison elsewhere um mm-hmm. appearance wise and this is definitely one of them. So, of course, uh, Sandown Sam, this occurred on the Isle of Wight in England. And a seven-year-old girl who is pseudonymously referred to as Faye Y, which they couldn't have chosen a better pseudonym. I mean, that is a direct call out to the fairy faith, um, was with a boy of her same age. And they were just actually, you know, playing and kind of walking around through this sort of meadowy area, the Isle of Wight, when they heard this siren-like noise. So they went looking for it, and they tracked the siren-like noise over a golf course and through another meadow, and then suddenly it stopped. And so as they were crossing this little footbridge, this gloved hand popped out from under the bridge, and this was followed by this tall, truly bizarre entity. Um, The best way to describe it is almost as like a clown-like automaton. It was wearing a very, like, almost classic, kind of like court jester-type suit, but its face was absolutely flat and um, devoid of any sort of like mobility or anything like that. This is one of those cases that it's really, really far out there. You have the out there cases. This is like the fringe of the fringe because these two children um, ended up really discussing almost nothing with this being for roughly about half an hour. At one point, it even invited them into this strange windowless metallic hut um, where it performed a strange conjuring trick with a berry. And then finally, they just wandered off because they wanted someone else to see this thing. And at the end of the day, they came to the conclusion that it was either a ghost or a man in a costume, which to me, that is even more frightening than if it was some sort of bizarre anomalous being. Now, the weird thing about this is that apparently through the whole duration of their encounter, there were workmen nearby who took absolutely no notice of whatever was going on, whether it was actually a person in a costume or some sort of anomalous being. Now, 
the reason that it seems to me to still be anomalous is because the girl's father claimed that for some years he had had multiple UFO encounters. So again, you have kind of that concept of familial anomaly, so to speak, um, where he had had these kind of increasing in closeness and increasing in detail, these UFO encounters. They started with just lights in the sky um, and finally culminated some years later in him seeing these two submerged objects that he said looked like giant glowing eyes out in the ocean until finally, a couple years after that, his daughter had this encounter with a strange being. Now, I should bring our listeners up to date. A few months ago, we had Colm Kelleher, who, of course, worked with Robert Bigelow for many years. And he pointed to something which it's possible the Pentagon may even look into it called the hitchhiker effect, where you see a UFO and you bring back something and you have other encounters. It's like maybe you're infected with a paranormal disease. You're talking about families with a history of strange encounters. And if you wonder here, was there a first encounter decades ago whatever that caused somebody to catch the paranormal disease. Well, I know too that um, Jenny Randles has found that a lot of her repeat contactees, um, you know, of anything, whether it's poltergeist type activity or strange being like creatures, like cryptids or UFOs, at some point in their early childhood had a sighting of light anomalies. So I thought that was absolutely intriguing, um, especially because that's one of my earliest encounters. I actually don't personally remember it, but my mom remembers me seeing um, what I called a glowing ball in the hallway um, when I was about two years old. So that definitely stood out to me, um, that it seems as though a lot of times people who have these kind of recurrent phenomena, many, many years in the past, will often have something that they may have even forgotten about where they saw simply strange lights. Well, we always see that sometimes strange lights precipitate other things yes they there does seem to be a special focus on light anomalies and even just the presence of light in paranormal phenomena that's something that i find intriguing i know keel um definitely saw that as a pattern as well and that's something that's been uh, that's being observed by uh people who've had uh, bigfoot experiences that uh, a lot of times uh in the areas that these creatures are seen there's also uh orb or other kinds of uh, uh, weird light phenomena taking place you know we're going yeah. to have zelio join us also on after the powercast our premium show because there's a chapter in the book called speculations that I'd like to go over with her. And I think that would be the best time because I'm going to ask her about the current investigations into UFOs and what she thinks is going to come from it. We've got more to come. Zelia and Gene and Tim, you're in. The Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. Hey, listeners. I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. With After the Paracast, you never know what's going to happen next. After the Paracast features color commentary, special interviews, and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. 
We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus. No matter if supply lines are down, product deliveries are slow, and that most everything costs more these days, you still have neck and shoulder pain, right? Good news. Sunny Bay has new products that target neck and shoulder pain. Products that are in stock now, ready to ship anywhere now. Like our extra-long neck heating pads. They provide soothing relief to painful, sore necks and backs. You can heat them in a microwave oven, and they come in a variety of colors and patterns. And for stress relief, get our lavender-scented hands-free neck wraps or maybe you need one of our smaller lower back wraps great for seniors again there's no shipping delays from sunny bay find our new products on amazon walmart etsy and sunny-bay.com just search for sunny bay neck wraps all our products are great for men or women are reusable and easy to clean remember just search for sunny bay neck wraps order now because stock is high and shipping is fast from sunny bay Tahibo Tea Club's original Pure Pouty Arco Super Tea comes from the only tree in the world that fungus does not grow on. As a result, it naturally has antifungal, anti-infection, antiviral, antibacterial, anti-inflammation, and anti-parasite properties. So the tea is great for healthy people because it helps build the immune system. And it can truly be miraculous for someone fighting a potentially life-threatening disease due to an infection, diabetes, or cancer. The tea is also organic and naturally caffeine-free. A one-pound package of tea is $49.95, which includes shipping. To order, please visit shopsupertea.com. The first word is shop, spelled S-H-O-P, then the word super, and then the word tea. The complete website is shopsupertea.com or call us at 818-984-6100 Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. California time. That's 818-984-6100. ShopSuperTea.com. Jake was in big trouble with the IRS. He owed how much? $92,000. Ouch. The IRS left no room for Jake to breathe. They put a lien on my house, took all the money out of my bank account, took money out of my paychecks. So it was a nightmare. He needed help fast. I figured that all these companies were the same until I called federal tax management. You could just tell they knew what they were talking about. Right then and there, I felt like I had some hope. Stop the liens, levies, and garnishments fast and qualify for one of several special IRS programs that could reduce or even eliminate your tax debt. So, how did it go for Jake? They did what they said they would do. They came through for me. I ended up saving an unbelievable amount. I was so jazzed. I was extremely happy. If you owe more than $10,000 in back taxes, take Jake's advice. Give federal tax management a phone call. If they help me, they can help anybody. Call the federal tax manager. Hotline now, 800 503 8625. 800 503 8625. 800 503 8625. Hi, this is Tracy Tormay, screenwriter producer. You're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. Okay. Just to tell you, I am very confident that the young people on this planet will continue to explore the unknown, and Zelia Edgar is an example. 
I'm old enough to be her grandfather and then some. But she's just way up there in terms of knowledge. And the book, by the way, I'll recommend it very highly. Just Another Tinfoil Hat Presents. That's from Beyond the Fray Publishing. And we've had other authors from that company on the show. It's a really, really well-written book. Fast breezy, you'll love it like we did. That's very high praise, so I, I just can't thank you enough. Okay, you can send the check to... <laughs> will do, will do. I should probably also mention, I guess it was just released today, I did sign on for the sequel, effectively, to my first book, so that will probably be coming out later this year. Very, very excited about that as well. So. That's terrific. Congratulations, and you'll thank be you. back when that happens. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, we did mention, of course, Mothman, peripherally. What's your take on that? Oh, my gosh. The events of Point Pleasant in 66 and 67, I mean, they really are kind of the epitome of high strangeness. You know, I think that the Mothman can't really be separated from the other events that were going on at the time, particularly the poltergeist manifestations and the UFO activity, you know, the strange anomalous lights that were being seen in the sky. You know, a lot of people really focus on it as some, you know, harbinger of doom, of course, for the Silver Bridge tragedy. I'm not necessarily sure if I see it particularly that way. Um, I'm also not sure if I would ever really separate what happened with the bridge collapse from the events, because it really did seem as though they were interconnected in some way, especially too when you look at how many people in the area were having prophetic dreams about something happening on the Ohio River. It's all interconnected in some way. But yeah, the Mothman is another prime example. That was another one that as a kid, I was like, oh, it's a cryptid. It's got to be some undiscovered owl or some undiscovered flying beast or something, or maybe it was a mutation. And it was many, many years when I finally read the Mothman prophecies that I realized this is probably one of the clearest high strangest entities that we can really nail down and be like, there is something even more bizarre than an undiscovered creature about this because physically it doesn't make any sense. You know, its wingspan was not big enough for it to even be able to take off in flight. Yet here you have these witness encounters where they say that it just took off from standing. It didn't even flap its wings. So it really seemed nearly like spectral in nature. That whole, whole event was such just an epitome of high strangeness. I would love to have seen that. Did you ever read a book from Gray Barker called Silver Bridge? That is his one book that I have not read yet. Um, I've read uh, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers and oh, what was the other? Was it Men in Black, The Secret Terror? Um, and a few others of his, but I that one I haven't read yet. It paints a more surreal picture of the Mothman and the collapse of the bridge. Well, that will have to move higher up on my to-read list then. I would recommend it because that's kind of almost like a head trip. In some ways, yeah. one of the best books that Barker wrote, but it's not a liberal, a literal, let me use that word again. It's not a literal interpretation of what happened. Ah, so it's to, kind of more abstract in a way? Very much so. Interesting. Oh, it's it's beautifully written, though. I mean, when Barker really wanted to, he could really write. He could really turn a phrase. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I definitely picked up on that in his other works. But, man, I'm not even sure if I have that one in physical copy. or I'll have to see if I've got that, because I know it's, it's been on my reading list forever. I have, I am terrible with that. I've got hundreds and hundreds of books that I'm like, okay, got to get that one, got to read this one, got to read that one, and I can easily just 
sit there with my head spinning being like, okay, which one should I start next? <laughs> Gene, uh, you have to remind me, uh, th- there was a reissue of it a couple of years ago, wasn't there? Yes, there's a company called New Sorcerian, which kind of revisits the works from Gray Barker and his publishing house. Paperback book is $17.99. It's affordable. Now, I should point out here that the introduction to the book is from Jim Mosley. The foreword is from Alan Greenfield, who is another person I've known for a thousand years. And he was very, very supportive of this book. However, there is also a hardcover version of the book selling for $1,424.95. Holy smokes. (laughs) I'm glad you didn't use the other word because I was about to. But <laughs> I'm assuming this is one of those situations where it's a create create space, as a matter of fact, where you can publish a book and you don't actually have to pay for it. And what they do is they print on demand. They have mm-hmm. these elaborate Xerox machines and they can print a book like that anytime you Isn't need that one. Wild. Isn't that wild? I, yeah. I only heard about that recently. I was like, that is insane. <laughs> The machine prints and collates, and I believe it binds the book. It's not expensive to authors because you can submit the manuscript, set up the account, and then for each book you get a certain royalty. Or you can buy the book for a really low price if you want to stock up. Huh. Oh, gosh. Well, this has been before Borders went out. I remember hearing vaguely way back when that they were trying to look into like something like that. Or maybe it's Barnes & Noble even that was thinking of like, you know, a customer can just walk in and press a button and get a book. And at the time, I was like, that sounds like Star Trek stuff, man, like science fiction. You'd have to have a physical file of that book, which would be like a PDF or something similar or a Microsoft Word file. And then you'd have to have a copy of the cover. It's not just printing any book in that case would be something within their availability of files but eventually yeah maybe they can do that i mean you can almost do that at google you know look at free books and sometimes google releases books that aren't free but we don't want to get into the google discussion and i do not wish to get into that today in this particular case though your publisher was beyond the fray and of course they have done some very interesting titles because we've had other authors on we're getting near the end of our main show. You'll be back for after the PowerCast. Maybe take a minute or two to explain to listeners where they can find more of your work. If you look up Just Another Tinfoil Hat, you will find me eventually. Uh, my website is justanothertinfoilhat.com. My YouTube channel is Just Another Tinfoil Hat. And of course, my book from Beyond the Fray is Just Another Tinfoil Hat Presents. Uh, my website's probably one of the best ways to contact me. Now, the channel. Tell us quickly about the YouTube channel. Sure thing. So, you know, if you like the idea of kind of eclectic retro cases viewed from a more high strangeness angle, um, then give it a shot. Currently, I do two research videos a month, and then I also do horror movie reviews and paranormal book reviews. That's my current format, and I'm looking to introduce some recorded investigations as soon as the weather is not 30 degrees below zero like it is right now. (laughs) Horror film reviews? Tell me more. Yes. So one of my videos every month is um, just a short review of a horror movie because I, in addition to the paranormal, I also love horror fiction. Um, I'm a sucker for like H.P. Lovecraft is one of my favorite authors right up there with Poe. Horror movies too. You know, there's a lot of bad ones out there, but there's also quite a few really good ones. So I only review the ones I like. If you trust my judgment, you can hear what I have to say about horror movies and maybe pick up one that you'd be totally frightened by. I don't know. 
Ah, all about the monsters. Oh, yes. <laughs> I go back to the days of watching the first release on television of the original Universal horror films. Let's tell you where you can find us. You can find us on Twitter. Look for the Paracast. Look for the Paracast on Facebook. And for some reason, they will not allow our URL to appear on Facebook. I think we frightened them off. They can't take it anymore. They've stuck their head out the window and said they're mad as hell and they can't take it anymore when they publish the Paracast.com URL. I'm kidding. You can also find branded merchandise at the Paracast.shop. That's the Paracast.shop. That's where you can pick from several different logos and get the T-shirts and the throw pillows and all that good stuff. We also have the Paracast Plus at the Paracast.plus where we offer... This show free of the network ads with higher quality audio and the after the Paracast podcast where Zelia will be back and that we offer as a premium extra for subscribers. It is uncensored. It is provocative and you're going to want to hear after the Paracast. We also have the special deal, by the way, where if you use the coupon code UFO20, UFO20, for five-year and lifetime subscriptions to the Paracast Plus, you get a 20% discount for the Paracast Plus. Zelia Edgar, thank you for joining us on the Paracast. Well, thank you so much for having me on. This has been so much fun. Featuring Gene Steinberg is a copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Tune in next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.